evening, ladies and gentlemen of the ensemble. I suppose you think I'm the prompter. I'm not. I am the conductor. This is my answer to outdoor opera. Singing opera in the out of doors is like painting with oils under water. I don't claim the art suffers, but the artist does. The orchestra may have a bit of difficulty seeing me, but I am also less of a target for the audience should they decide to become demonstrative. I understand the soprano and the tenor have stopped fighting, so the curtain must be about to go up. But before you see tonight's opus, we present this little opera bouffe. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Um, we're still in quarantine, so that's a lot of fun. That's a whole lot of fun. Um, yeah, no, so we're, um, but we're still going to keep plugging away on the show regardless of any uh, pandemic interferences. You know, there's plenty of ways to make a podcast. You know, you can record off of uh, different uh, FaceTime apps. Uh, you can uh, do stuff on your own or you know, you could just, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, make TikTok videos. You know, that's not a podcast, but hey, it's something to do, right? Um, but thankfully, here on the Shamley Silhouette, we don't make TikTok videos. We talk about the master of suspense and the different facets and uh, parts of his career that have come into legend. Um, on today's show, we're going to talk about three films where Hitchcock uh, found um, uh, found himself in a rather tricky position with each of the three. Uh, in in a sense, while these films are considered failures by comparison to the larger scope of his career, in each film we will find that he had a way of toying with ideas that would come into more masterful use down the line. Um, whether it's the use of music in films, whether it's his framing and his meticulous detention to detail, or if it's something as simple as his POV shots that have become so masterful as time goes on in things like rear window or psycho um here to discuss this with me uh is none other than a return guest who you've all loved to death i love him to death you can't get enough of him he talked about 3d with us last time and he's coming back once again to talk about hitchcock failures but there's some optimism in these ones because these are in the beginnings of hitchcock's career so Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Marshall Rosales. I am honored to be back. You Thank are you alive. I'm glad that you are alive. <laughs> How you been holding up and everything? I am holding up <clears throat> quite well. Um, really, all things considered, um, I've been lucky to uh, maintain some work, and uh, I'm uh, working on writing a film also, um, so that's been keeping me busy, um, but... Yeah, yeah, been doing okay. Yeah, you're doing good. So then that, so you've been finding a way to keep busy, keep steady, in all this. You know, like it doesn't take you going outside to write a script. So, no, yeah, it um, it's funny. I got my first 
um, full month's worth of an electric bill a little while ago, <laughs> and it was literally exactly the same as it has been. So my <laughs> life has not changed a ton. Nothing I'm quite the introvert. You didn't ration uh, your electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It's very good to know that you can continue. We, we've, in preparation for this episode, Marshall and I have been texting back and forth, and we were talking more about 3D in the process and just sharing collections. So clearly he's been able to keep himself busy with all those different um, viewing experiences. You showed me a couple of titles that I, had, I hadn't never even heard of. So I was very, uh, very, I was very enamored by the fact that you were still collecting like even after like all the stuff that you've been able to find, you're finding titles that I didn't even know were 3D films, let alone didn't know they existed at all. So, oh yeah, well after actually after we did after our last podcast on uh, talking about 3D, it really kind of um, stoked a different kind of fire in me for 3D, and so I really started doing a lot of research into the original 50s, all the films that were produced in in 53 and 54, um, and that and that came out then, and just started. There's um, 3D Film Archive is a company that has devoted themselves to going and, and finding these old prints and doing these amazing restorations on them and, and realigning the um, the two different film tracks so that now, you know, you're able to see 3D better than literally anyone has ever been able to see before mm. with the restoration work that they're doing. And so I just started, you know, snapping all those up because I, I would love to see that that aspect of, of Hollywood history that I haven't really been exposed to before. Right. No, and it's something that like when the episode did come out um, and, and I had to go in and, um, you know, touch up um, boost audio and stuff. And I was just like, man, like this is just something I wasn't really thinking actively about. And I was really glad that we were able to get that conversation down on digital access, so to speak, because it's I think it's one that, you know, as we as we're moving forward within the industry of film itself and also the crossroads it finds itself in with the. uh pandemic and everything one has to wonder if something like 3d could make a comeback as a way to attract people back into the theater but also is it a chance for people to learn their lessons from the past you know um yeah yeah i don't know i mean i think that you know i mean main uh, i made this point in the podcast but at the end of the day i think it should be approached as it's another tool of filmmaking mm -hmm. no different than than color or sound yeah um, and absolutely, and, we don't want it to be something that's just a um, an add-on to a ticket, you know? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So basically, what we're all saying is, guys, is that Disney needs to stop being jerks and give us their 3D films in the U.S. so that we don't have to wait for imports to be delivered, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, amongst many, a multitude of other things. Please don't kill all the old Fox titles. Ooh, Please, oh, uh, you, you see, you're you're fighting the 3D front. I'm fighting the overall Fox situation. I'm I'm doing my part by letting it known that I don't like the. You know what's funny though, the 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 name change that they made to Fox 20th Century Studios is the same company that it was before it merged with Fox Movie Tone. So <laughs> circled back around, but this time I know what they're doing with it. <laughs> so it's not. It's definitely not going to be the same situation of, man, like, <laughs> we're going to get some masterful films from some wonderful filmmakers. That's not happening. That's that's not going to happen. And with, with Disney's financial troubles, they're going to lean heavier and heavier on their uh, established uh, properties at this point. That's, that's all they're going to be able to do with everything going on with COVID, at least to my mind. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of forward-thinking, um, artistically progressive ideas from Disney in an extremely long time. I think a lot of their <laughs> um, successes are in, in in large part despite <laughs> the way that that company has been run. It, anything they've had that's innovative is something they've acquired and not something that they've done on their own. Like whether it's uh, through a financial or, or a property acquisition or a studio acquisition, like. I really love Jojo Rabbit, and that was released under the first year of Disney having control of the Fox slate. So it it was, and it was interesting because that film, I don't know if it would have done any bigger at the box office than it did, but it felt like the promotion was super skimpy by comparison to anything else Disney had on their slate. And I know that Ready or Not definitely suffered because of this. Um, yeah, that which is a great film. If you haven't seen Ready or Not, do check it out. Um, it, it 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 has some visual qualities in a, but that are similar to a film we will be talking about today. <laughs> um, so, but uh, yeah, it, so basically, the bottom line is as as film as film is changing and evolving amidst this situation, but also how how it, how it has been for the past five or ten years. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if some old things come back and, and maybe people will have learned their lesson. I highly doubt it. I don't think anybody in Hollywood ever learns their lessons. Um, it's, it's been made abundantly clear, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Hollywood as a, you know, as a, as a giant machine is made up of many parts and many people. Um, but it, it really has been sort of a Godhead and the neck has always been, something that the head has been trying to get control of and doesn't. And that is, um, the audience. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, like happened in the seventies the with easy Rider and yeah. in the nineties with Miramax is that these, these different, um, these different ways of approaching storytelling come into play. And if the audience likes them and they flock to them, then the neck of the audience turns the head of the giant, you know, Got of him, Hollywood. Yeah. And, um, but then that becomes the norm. Yeah. And they try to make that perfect and <laughs> do the same thing over and over again until the audience gets tired of it. And some new innovative soul or souls rise and produce something else that is super attractive to an audience and the neck turns the head again. And so yeah. I think that this pandemic situation um, has almost built a more fertile ground for, for something like that to happen than has ever happened before because we're going to be entering an arena where all of the films that had finished production prior to the shutdown mm -hmm. are going to have gone through post-production and be ready to go, but there will not have been anything in the pipeline for however many months, however many months this continues to go on. Yep. And so there's going to be some fertile ground for for something else to emerge, it'll be interesting to see what it is. So I'm, so I'm just saying, we make a YouTube video and it gets best picture. You know, that's it's very simple. Like, what, what's that? What was that character, Fred? Fred the Fred the YouTube star or whatever? Let him win an Oscar at this point, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, but Martin Scorsese has to deliver. Has to be the one to give the Oscar <laughs> over if that's what happens. No, no, I'm not going down without a fight. No, 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 no. You can't make me. <laughs> or, or, or Chris Nolan also might be a good choice for that. <laughs> Speaking of which, he is. I, I will tell you, there's a story about uh, the stuff they were doing for Tenet, and I guess they cl crashed an actual plane for one of the scenes in the movie. And I was like, 
That sounds like about the, as much insanity that Hitchcock would go through just to get a good practical effect going. <laughs> like, yes, I don't think Hitchcock would have suffered CGI lightly. <laughs> but no, well, that's like um, causing the actual avalanche for Revenant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a level of filmmaking that I, yeah, I, I don't even have the guts to aspire to. Well, now, well, now Inuratu is trying to do VR so he can put it right in your face. So. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, lovely man. I'm sure he's interesting to work for. But yes, yeah. But it's it, and that's funny though. We, we were talking about the the uh, use of technology within a certain respect of like how people utilize it. Like Hitchcock, somebody who obviously was able to innovate and use new technology, but to tell like to use it to the story's advantage and not just because he could do it. So it's uh, it's interesting if he was in the realm of CGI. I'd imagine he'd use it for things that were practical to a uh, a grounded story and not necessarily like I think the closest you'd get to like a huge effect would probably be a plane crash but I think he would probably try to do as much of it practically as possible because this is a guy who would be able to tell what would look good and what not what would not look good on screen you know Yeah yeah so. well I think that you know I I've, I've spoken before about what I called the Hitchcock boredom <laughs> and I think that 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 like all things has two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. and um and i think that part of the the boredom that hitchcock grew to have with the process of making film allowed him to be fascinated with applying different um you know innovative technologies or, yeah. or trying something new because it was just like oh well if i can try this thing in this movie that's the only thing i'm interested about yeah so yeah i guess i'll make a whole movie around it just so i can do this experiment yeah um like i i feel like uh david fincher is a lot like that yeah as well yeah very um, much so when looking he found for something out... to to hook you know to get his hooks into yeah when he found out about when he found out about digital cinema he he went hog wild like i the stories on benjamin button and uh social network and how many takes are done on those shoots is well, staggering it's insane. my my favorite story from from a fincher um about digital is working on zodiac mm-hmm. that uh apparently robert downey jr was so incensed at never being allowed to return to his trailer because mm-hmm. they just ran take after take after take that he started peeing in bottles and hiding them around the set yep in like in protest and yep. i just i love that story with all my heart and that's and that's one of those like that led that led eventually to the statement that he ended up making about just like i'm not going to do these non non big studio films anymore because of this reason here and i'm like oh that sucks i wish wish <laughs> it's 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 one of many things that he said that contributed to that decision i was just like yeah but you you're really good and we want to see you do things yeah. <laughs> but the time's caught up with them and now yeah. you know everything is shot on digital so all sets are run that way so. yeah exactly so it's not like and i'm and I'm, I'm more than sure that he didn't appreciate having to be called back for re, uh, reshoot after reshoot for avengers movies um but you know obviously a reshoot for endgame gave us one of the best lines in that movie um or best moments i guess like a good way to cap that whole uh arc off for him um, but we're here. We're not here to talk about Avengers, although I'm sure Hitchcock would have made a wonderful Avengers movie. We're here to talk about that. That would be fucking great. <laughs> I, okay, you metal man, get over there with Starman, and then you. Ooh, that's a fucking tree. That's a huge fucking tree. <laughs> yeah. 
I've watched it at least a couple times. That's for sure. Dead. <laughs> um, but we're here to talk about three different films from Hitchcock's British Gamo period. Now we haven't, we've talked about the British Gamo period all throughout the uh, course of the series. We haven't really done an episode dedicated solely to it outside of the lady vanishes episode. Um, at the time that these three films come out, Hitchcock has already made the transition to sound. Um, it started with murder uh, and then uh, followed up by blackmail. Um, and in this time, he's making the transition from pure cinema into trying to find a way to put pure cinema into sound films and working with the technology of sound as he had never had to do before. Um, when we talk about the transition from sound uh, from sound from silent film, um, the key thing to notice is that the, there is there is a limitation in the onset of sound's existence where you are not able to really work with that camera the way you'd want to. Now, there, contrary to popular belief, the camera was able to move um, and eventually was able to move so much that we get sweeping shots in movies from the thir late 30s and 40s because the technology incre uh, had improved. But initially, it was very locked off there's a booth off to the side. You've got to keep everything just basically in place so that everything syncs up. Um, it's not until the sound on film process is perfected that they're able to start moving around. At the time, uh, a lot of sound films were being done on disc. Um, so the three films that we're talking about, among them, we're going to start off with one that it's very clear that this film is in the middle of him still figuring out uh, how to transition from silent to sound. Um, and we're, and I of course speak of the film number 17. Um, number 17 is based off of a stage play, uh, by Joseph Jefferson Ferion, um, called number 17. And this, the, the film ended up getting basically, I want to say it, it's a film that much like it's play has a hard time making sense to the audience. Um, and as a result, people were picking up on that. So it had very little to do with the technology itself and adapting to new innovative ideas as opposed to just like the story itself was never that great to begin with. Um, but regardless, the movie was made um, and it's from 1932. So this is about I want it's, to it's literally about three years after something like the jazz singer comes out and completely changes the game for uh, an entire industry, which we haven't had a reckoning like that up until the digital era, the digital streaming era specifically, where that's the new reckoning that Hollywood is facing. Um, and so as a result, everybody's having to change virtually everything about their entire career. Um, I've, a, a big thing to point out amidst all this uh, this film gets kinder reception, uh, both to me and also I would uh, assume to the critics of the era, because um, there's a film that comes out uh, prior to this called Rich and Strange, which gets absolutely eviscerated because it's very clear that there are sections that are just solely filmed only for sound and then the rest is basically a silent movie. Um, hmm. This was typical of the era because a lot of studios freaked the hell out naturally because we're used to making silent films. This is the this is what the art form is. And now all of a sudden Jack Warner and his um, and his well, Sam Warner actually decided that he wanted to innovate with sound. Uh, unfortunately, 
that project ended up killing him. Um, not directly. He had an abscess and there was no penicillin at the time. So, um, but he died, uh, just before the jazz singer was released. Um, and as a result, basically changed the industry. Uh, but Warner's changes the entire game and now everybody's having to adapt. And that includes British cinema. Um, so even as Hitchcock defined British cinema, not too long before with the lodger, now he's got to redefine it again. Um, and it's safe to say that like anything, when you're transitioning technologies, everybody has their little bumps in the road. Um, I will say that murder and blackmail, which are films that, um, uh, fingers crossed we're going to get an episode on before the end of it because uh, the guest that I had scheduled um, I don't know his current situation with COVID and ability to record so if not we'll figure out a way to do it but murder and blackmail and also murders um, German version which is also directed by Hitchcock um, and it's called um, Mary um, uh, for <laughs> the German title uh, those are films where he's able to do some tricks with sound. Oh, I'm sorry, blackmail comes out before murder. Um, but they're able to use tricks with sound in order to up the ante on the suspense game for Hitchcock. So basically, when he makes blackmail and the murder, he's already on his way to doing doing things correctly, but there's still an adjustment period. And that comes with a film like Number 17. Um, number 17, obviously, directed by Yurner Hu. Um from a screenplay by Alfred Hitchcock, Alma Revel, and Rodney Ackland, based on the play. The film stars John Stewart, Anne Gray, Leon M. Lyon, Donald Calthrop, Barry Jones, and Anne Casson. Um, and cinematography by Jack Cox and Brian Langley, and edited by A.C. Hammond. I bring up these two specifically because when you watch a film like Number 17, what amazes me every time I watch it is, is that for all that doesn't make sense in the movie, it's, it's pretty incredible how the film is directed and edited to connote, uh, energy and speed. This movie operates on the same editing structure as an action film or even a, um, uh, intense horror film that we might see today. Like the, the biggest thought that was running through my head through some of the fast editing was, a Rob Zombie movie or a Saw movie. Um, obviously hmm. not to the extent of the shaky things that both of those uh, filmmakers or films do when it comes to like connoting intense speed or speeding up somebody in a trap. But there are moments in this film where they are knocking each other around. People are falling through walls, through, falling through ceilings, and just everything is at a quick pace. And it shows because this movie is only 64 minutes. <laughs> And yet a lot happens. <laughs> Not yeah, all of it making sense. The, yeah, the the cutting style is very caustic um, in, in different aspects of it. And it's, um, it is interesting to me to see where the, um, how imbalanced it is. Is yeah. that I feel like when it's, when there's dialogue scenes and, and there isn't anything that, Hitchcock is trying to elevate with mm -hmm. the visuals. It's shot just like a stage play. And yep. it's a, it's very simply shot and the cutting is extremely slow. Yep. And you've got a lot of characters typically filling the frame at the same time. Um, <laughs> just sort of like, you know, spilling their dialogue. Yep. And then when something is going to happen or is about to happen or is happening, it gets very, very caustic. Yep. Um, and, and I, 
I found it so fascinating to feel or to you know to find that of the three, this was the by far the shortest. Yeah. Excuse me, 64 minutes, 63 minutes, something like that, you said? Right? 64 to 65, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like it's three and a half hours long. It, <laughs> it, and and I really do feel that it part of what part of what is to blame is that imbalance of the cutting, is that mm-hmm. it will get super fast, but it's coming so incredibly out of nowhere that yeah. it, like, um, it, you know, gives, it shocks your brain. Yeah. And then it will lull back into exposition and the dialogue through the story, and it just like draws on and on and on and on, and then a bunch will happen really fast, and then it will draw on and on and on and on, and so it it does make it feel like, as you said, a lot is happening really quickly. Um, but the imbalance makes it feel like the movie is a lot longer than it is to to a negative, I would say. Yeah, and so a bit of background before we jump into this plot here. You know, we're talking about this caustic editing and a lot of stuff. So we should go back to this basic fact about number 17. Um, And I'm going to let Alfred Hitchcock um, tell you um, in one simple sentence why this film might not be completely great. Well, the story sucks and I don't want to fucking do it because this is a film he didn't want to make. He wanted to do an adaptation of the John Van Druten play London Wall but uh, the financial failure of Rich and Strange, or East of Shanghai, as, as it is also known, um, uh, John Maxwell took him off of London Wall and put him on this movie instead. And he has referred to it as a terrible, pe- a terrible picture and a very cheap melodrama. Now, having said that, though, you know, Hitchcock's not one to skimp. And that's something we're going to find in all of these films. He doesn't skimp on, he, he will put effort into things. Like, it's not, this is not about a lack of effort. Like, I don't think anybody is um uh whatever whatever claim that uh that there's a uh lack of uh dedication to the craft but it is very clear that even he can't save the story itself and you know this is also co-written by Alma Revel and you know I think this is a case where they both have to do the best they can um a- along with Rodney Ackland just trying to make sense of the story that it, it, from all indications seems like it didn't even make sense on the stage and that it was just like, uh, it, it's like, it's a one setting place for the most part in this film until we get outside to the train at the end. Um, yes. Which is, is very clearly a, uh, a contrivance for the film because the, the entire second half of the film would have been next to impossible to do on a, on a stage play. Yeah. And I, I tried to track down a synopsis of the stage play um, to figure out, sort of you know what was changed or if it was changed or if i was even if if i am even accurate about guessing that the train had nothing to do with the stage play and i i couldn't find anything um but but yeah i mean as as far as the putting the effort towards it i think that there's you know it's Hitch, this movie was assigned to hitchcock um and so I, there's almost a feeling of like trying trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip out of spite <laughs> um, in terms of the effort and, and the, the, the the attitude behind the way the effort is applied in this film. He's just he's doing his fucking best. That's the that's the weird thing. Like you people have a fondness for this film um, in the comments section on um, our Instagram page. When I posted a picture of uh, uh, number 17 a while back when I was rewatching it for the series, um, it was 
people were admiring it and it was like a, and it was almost like it's a it's a guilty pleasure so th hmm. there's nothing like inherently wrong with liking this movie but if you're but if we're breaking it down the way we do on the shamley silhouette we're going to be talking about how the fact is that there's just not there's there's very little here outside of the obvious things you can pinpoint to Hitchcock's style, but there's no substance to the story we're discussing whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and as far as the, again, to, to speak to the efforts that you were talking about there, um, there was a, a relationship that seems to have been broken by this film that I would love to dive deeper. But, uh, one of the directors of photography, Jack Cox, mm -hmm. um, he had worked with almost consistently on every single film from 1927 until this film. Yeah. And then they stopped working together all the way until he did The Lady Vanishing, and that was the last time they ever worked together. Yeah. Um, and that um, is, like, there's definitely a story behind that, right? Yeah, there's there's got to be. Uh, there's not one that I found uh, in, a, in any specific motif. Um, I'd have to go back to um, uh, a couple different books or Secret History of Hollywood to see if there's something very specific to it. The thing is, is that there's, there's outside of the information that Hitchcock doesn't really like this film there's not much else to it um but we'll just go ahead and jump right into this film because i don't there's a lot going on but i don't think it's going to take us that long to get through it well yeah i'm but before you jump in i just like i want to let you know i'm yeah. i'm going to sit back for the beginning of it because i'm curious to see where you start in how you even tell this story aside from sitting someone down to watch this film for an hour. Yeah. The, so let, let me be very clear too about how you describe number 17 out loud. Um, and it's a problem that I've had with discussing silent films of Hitchcock's on the show in a way that is meaningful because it's, it's hard to tell uh, on a podcast about something that's inherently visual like it's it, you you're not going to do justice to the imagery like if something like the lodger like the thing with the lodger we were able to discuss was breaking down the story when i talked with jack hanley on it right so in in this in the case of number 17 there's two problems with this one this story is incomprehensible and number two is that it's primarily visual and as marshall pointed out when it is dialogue it's stays there and there's very little happening there <laughs> like there's like virtually nothing outside of the character uh character twitches and stuff like yeah there's virtually nothing i mean like we'll go ahead and jump right out we open with a hat blowing down the wind like in one of the most interesting shots in the movie <laughs> like, mm -hmm. a well, hat I, blow um sorry I, I just wanted to 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 jump in there real quick and i think that the the difficulty about exp about talking about the plot of this film is that everything that happens in this film is based on what this actual story is about, which yeah. happens before the film starts. Yeah. Which you, because you don't know about your constant, all you're discovering, like the film is the process of discovering what has already happened. Yeah. So it's like the entire film is exposition to find out what set this film up so that you can be interested and involved with what is going on. And, and, and the film tries to strike that balance of keeping you engaged because you don't know what's going on. And you're, you're, you're going along the, the, you know, the solving of this mystery along with the, the characters, but it is so inherently reliant 
on all of what has happened prior to the film has set up and all the relationships and occurrences and, and everything like that, that it makes describing the film one difficult two impossible without any spoilers. Um, in fact, I will, I will confess to you that in my research for this, after watching it, I actually flagged one of the, um, plot synopses on IMDb because not only did it give everything away and what it, in what I thought was a really bad way, but they misnamed the characters. So yeah. um, if, if when you go to IMDb, there is only one plot synopsis, you will have me to thank for the second one being taken down. Yeah. It, it is. It, it, here's the question that I have, Marshall. Do yeah. you care if this is spoiled? <laughs> I mean, to an extent the, I do, the, obviously the movie but. does. I, I, as far as our podcast, no, but but yeah. but the movie really does because it's like the second to last line of dialogue for Christ's right. sake. Um, so, but but it's just it like it's you can't even be sly about it by saying okay. So this guy walks into this house called number seventeen and keep calling him the guy without giving up the spoiler because it's not the film. Yeah. Like the only way to not give it away is to just watch the film. Um, so I'll, I'll let you continue. I just no. kind of wanted to preface that with just, oh, no. I was thinking about this, this part of our podcast and being like, how do you talk about what has happened here without constantly being like, okay, cause see, here's what happened before the movie started. And here's what also happened before the movie started. And here's why this is interesting. <laughs> and it's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's no, it's fine. You know, oh, well, before I do, I'll point out based on how this is being described to the audience, because believe me, it, it's, it's pretty much this. Uh, the 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 only way this story would make sense is if you got Quentin Tarantino to write a three hour movie based on this play, and then he could do his narrative retooling and um, shifting of timelines in order to tell the story in an interesting way. Because as it's such, we're trying to just we're dropped into the action. Now I normally like that in a movie because I like to be kind of just thrust into things and then pick up stuff along the way if it's well written. When you when you throw something somebody into a story without any context whatsoever, like zero context, like and just basically spending roughly thirty five of your sixty four minutes explaining things, that's when it becomes very that's, very trying. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. That is a brilliant brilliant analogy. That this number seventeen is Reservoir Dogs yes. without any of the flashbacks yeah exactly it just is if 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 reservoir dogs started in the car and continued to the warehouse yeah and you never had any flashbacks that is number 17 yeah that's that's perfect that's um, that's brilliant yeah bravo and that and that makes and that makes ben you know that makes ben the uh, mr pink you know <laughs> <laughs> yes um but so we open up on this hat blowing down the street and we have uh a a, a uh, a, a young man, um, uh, he calls himself Forsyth, um, and when we initially find out his name, um, or is it his name? You'll find out. Uh, <laughs> this is a how-many-year-old movie. <laughs> We're past the point of uh, spoiler alerts on this one. Um, but uh, uh, the he's arriving at a house that's marked for uh, rent, and um, but it's open. So he he goes in, and basically we're treated to the suspense that you find in a haunted house movie 
um, you know, the, this is a decrepit building. Like this thing is falling apart. Building codes are, you know, meaningless to 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 this uh, this establishment here that we are dealing with. Um, he approaches up the stairs, and as he's approaching up the stairs, um, a rather disheveled-looking hobo man, played um, uh, uh, played by uh, Leon M. Lyon, um, he calls himself Ben, is uh, ostensibly like walking, wandering through the house, and discovers a dead body on top of the um, the staircase, and then they cross paths with each other um and uh they go into a routine about you know what is ben doing here and also what is forsyth doing here and they're trying to figure out why the why why is there a dead body lying on the ground that's kind of why i made also the saw analogy is just like it it sets up that similar situation of like two people in a room all of a sudden there's a and, and there's a dead body in the middle of the floor they're trying to figure out what's going on difference between this and saw is is that this is early british cinema with sound and we're talking about you know we're giving each other basically origin stories <laughs> like um and th th from then on it like for like a good 10 minutes it's kind of just them wandering through the house and trying to figure out what's going on amidst very elementary pratfalls yeah and physical comedy yeah and, and i use that um I'm, yeah I'm being very generous with yeah the and, word and, comedy there. and this is like and again like wh when we have the conversations that are locked off we have you know a, a scene with ben like go rifling through his own pockets to assure that he isn't the one who killed the man and he goes like well this is a head handkerchief i you know i i strangled him with that or this is string gagged i stabbed him. him with it you know <laughs> i gagged him with it or I gagged him with it, yeah, and then uh, the the sausage is what this is what I beat him over the head with. <laughs> yeah, I beat him over the head with the sausage. I stabbed him with the string, and yeah. I gagged him with the handkerchief. Yeah, yeah. The most interesting character trait that we have of Ben is that he pulls out a picture of a kid, and Forsyth grabs it, and then he's like, "No, no, no, that that not that." And you find out that he had a kid that died, and I'm like, "Oh, well, this is interesting. Like, <laughs> this yeah. is a character, like." <laughs> This is something going on, you know, like, and, you know, the guy Forsyth, um, he's played by Jon Stewart. No, not that Jon Stewart. Um, J-O-H-N-S-T-U-A-R-T, um, who was a, 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 an actor with Hitchcock for three films in the early years, starting with The Pleasure Garden. So he's mm -hmm. been around the Hitchcock camp and seen him grow over the years. Yeah, so, fun piece of trivia, the film he did after this, immediately after this, was called Men of Steel. And then <laughs> many, many years later, in 1978, he would be the 10th Kryptonian elder in uh, uh, Dick Donner's Superman. Oh, that's so that's how you know Donner cared. <laughs> yes. And the guy had 228 acting credits at the time of his death. Yep. And he, 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 he worked the gamut. You know, he, he was in Flying Fortress and... Um, the the big blockade like th this is a guy who ran around especially through the war years too so it's it's good to know that he has a legacy that caps off with Superman that is his final role that is in Village of the Dam too he's in Village of the Dam he's Professor Smith oh wonderful yeah. so he's so he's just he he was an actor who you know was a legend within Britain's film community obviously this is a film that he'll be remembered for only for the association with Hitchcock because he's not doing anything particularly 
wonderful in the movie. He's he's our hero, so I guess he's actively doing things technically, but <laughs> Yeah, but it's um the the character, you know, from a from a writing standpoint, this is actually kind of a an interesting study, is that the character of um or his the character he's playing, I'll pretend like we're not gonna give it away, um only works linearly through the story. Yeah. Once you know who he is, nothing he does makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once we find, and especially when we get to the end, because yeah. when we find out what's going on at the end, then you're just like, well, okay, how did anything that you ended up going through make any sense or logical choice? Like it just, it's, it's a shame because it, 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 when I first saw this film, I felt like it was incomplete because it was a bootleg and this was back in college. I did not know enough research into it until I started doing this podcast on why it feels so skimpy. It's because there's just nothing to this story. There's just If you listen to The Secret History of Hollywood, he talks about um, how essentially like th- there was nothing to begin with, so they had very little to work off of. So it's mm-hmm. it's almost just like, well, we're, guess- we're basically adapting this straightforward. We're just going to have to make this visually interesting. Yeah. So... That that already puts you in a corner, and we've talked about Hitchcock in a corner before, but this is early on in his career, so he's already having to like come up with solutions to problems, and then sometimes like in the cases of like plays adapted f- into films, there are times when the film supersedes the play, whether it's the Petrified Forest or um, even if you're going into novels. Like I mean, I like the book No Country for Old Men. I think the film takes it to a different level, so. Essentially, you're make you're doing you're doing good with whatever you have access to. When we get to those pratfalls, though, when they're not talking, they're obviously they're antiquated and obviously they're still stuck in the root of what you do in silent cinema, where it's physical acting. We're not we're not needing any sound other than like if if, if this was a silent film, there'd be dialogue cards within all this, and this would be primarily what you'd be seeing. You wouldn't yeah. even see the 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 slowdown for any form of explanation whatsoever. Um, well, you and, also have an issue of most of the pratfalls are coming from the character of Ben from yeah. uh, Leon M. Lyon. Who, um, and who clearly has a problem. <laughs> well, interestingly, he also produced the film. Yep. So I would be willing to bet that he that was a thing that he thought he was particularly good at and asked for that to be significantly amped up. Um, to, and a, a nice little bit of tidbit is Hitchcock described him as an awful old man. <laughs> so clearly yep. they got along great during yep. this production oh yeah yeah and 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 he didn't like i, I think it again it, it it boils down to like if you know if you've got to be stuck in this situation you you tend to you know you know make do with what you have and you know get along with the people you're working with if you've got to go through this because again this is something he doesn't want to do so you know he's 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 nudged into this like it's and part of like the whole you know, being assigned to a picture back in this era of uh, filmmaking in general. It's not just Hollywood. You know, this is this is done through um, uh, British. Um, sorry, this is um, this is done through British international pictures. So this is not even the gamo um, uh, decision making at hand. And this is before he goes back to British gamo in Gainsborough and makes uh, some of the classics that we know today that get Criterion releases. Um, but he's assigned to this thing. He would get assigned to things. There's a period after the lodger before um, 
the 39 steps um and or even sabotage too where um uh, uh well be the before the 39 steps you basically have him being assigned to melodramas that he ends up making interesting so it's not like like whether it's uh down downhill or the manx man and stuff like that he is basically having to visually up the ante on films that are otherwise if you put it in any other director's hands it's not going to be interesting or memorable in any stretch of the imagination so this is another case of i've got to elevate shit or <laughs> or at the very least i've got to elevate something that people seem to like but why is the question um yeah and they, that's fair but i will say amongst my favorite things coming up in this film uh as they're searching through the house the, they uh, they are walking around. There's a lot of great use of shadows in this movie, and they're just isolated moments. Um, but there's clearly Hitchcock using things that he had used pre- previously in The Lodger and other films like Blackmail and Murder, where he's able to create uh, a, a dark and gritty atmosphere amidst uh, this frivolous melodrama. So he's able to... He's basically making a haunted house movie to a certain really respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, very horrific horrorific yeah. um in its um presentation yeah and and a lot of this can stem back to his influences from people like fritz lang and paul lenny who really shaped cinema in germany with uh, with their forms of german expressionism so he's still using those tricks and the camera the, the camera placement and the shot composition is intentional within the style of how hitchcock would storyboard things out so there's a construction to this film. It just feels like much like an Ikea. There are pieces missing that you will take forever to find or if at all find them. So, um, but one of my favorite things that comes up is that as they're looking through, they look up and something crashes through the roof and it's, and it's a woman. So, which it, it's, she's revealed to be Miss Aykroyd played by Anne Casson who, and she's crying out for her dad she lives in this place. How'd she fall through that fucking roof? <laughs> it's, it, and I mean, yeah. The, the How do you not know the outlay of your own damn house? <laughs> and, and Anne Casson are utterly delightful. There's, uh, there's yeah. a scene coming up where there's just this, oh, I fainted. Yeah. That <laughs> is, she, is, she is so delightful and she's very, very charming. But um, yeah, she crashes through the roof. That is her grand entrance into this film. Yeah. <laughs> and she has, and it, it is, I almost kind of feel like the reason that she needed such a grand entrance is because she is so utterly crapped upon as her exit of the film. Yeah. Oh, she, she's, she's virtually unheard of during the climax. Like she, she's not, she's nowhere. Yeah. But, she's forgotten. Yeah. She, she's ex- exactly. We, you're setting her up. It seems like it's, she's being set up to be the love interest, but then it's just kind of like, no, nah, we're not there. No, nah, not today. Like, but that again, that would probably stem out to the play where there's something, maybe there's something there that we're not seeing, but, um, you know, but they, she, she goes into an explanation that her father, um, was on the roof and that, um, they, um, they were, uh, in number 15 and they read a telegram that basically, uh, talks about people coming to meet up to get a piece of a diamond necklace at number 17, and so that's basically what ends up happening after after midnight hits the, you know the, uh, things are going around and the body disappears all of a sudden 
So that dead body is gone now. Um, the the problem with explaining how everything happens in between is because the editing is so choppy. Like it's unclear how things form linearly. <laughs> yeah. So I just if 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 I may sort of like take a stab at at the next like fifteen minutes because it it is like I I had to kind of. I had to do some actual like physical mental work. <laughs> my brain was physically churning in my head yeah. to try to figure out what did I just watch and what just happened. Yeah. So, so John Stewart's character shows up at this house, mm -hmm. runs into Ben, who is this disheveled homeless person. Yep. And a dead body. Yep. And then after searching the dead body and finding some things, then um, Rose Ackroyd, crashes through the roof. Yep. And they she has a telegram that says is that what says that something at 12:30 yeah. is going to happen? Yeah, that it something has yeah. been that, yeah. Okay, so they decide we need to leave the house before this thing happens, but then the bell chimes and they think it's only midnight, but it turns out no, it's actually 12:30. Yeah. And then the doorbell rings. And they go downstairs mm -hmm. and at the door is a man with a woman. Yep. And then as they're coming in, another man comes along with them. Yeah. Yep. And, and I will I will describe the three uh, the, the three characters because they are technically important. Um, Mr. Ackroyd, uh, played by Henry Kane. Nora, uh, who is a deaf and mute woman, uh, played by Anne Gray. Uh, and a third person. And this third person um, uh, will turn out to be very important um, his, uh, because we can't reveal his name yet because it's technically a twist. No, you're. I believe you are incorrect. <laughs> Actually, it's not. This is this is the problem with this film. Yeah, is not only is it super confusing, but everyone looks the same. Yeah, um, in the film, but it's not. It's not Ackroyd who shows up. It's Brant. It's Nora Brant and Brant, and yes, Henry Doyle. That's right. Yes. So so we have Brant. Mrs. Brandt and Doyle, um, mm -hmm. who's the spoiler that uh, he's the spoiler in this fil film until he's not <laughs> until he's not. Yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, th they meet up at the house and. <laughs> but they don't know each other. No, they don't. Like, they don't know each Brandt other. Brandt shows up with Mrs. Brandt, who he introduces as a deaf mute. Yeah. Um. And then this other, this third person shows up who very obviously is lying about them being related. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's even unclear why, why either of them would be even remotely important. Like, well, granted, nobody's important in this movie. <laughs> right. And, and, and just like the writing is so on the wall that everyone is lying. Yeah. That is walking in. But then they continue along the pretenses that they're there to tour the house because it's up for sale. Yeah. And then. So it, then. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll jump into it as they're being discovered. As everything's kind of un unwinding, there's a point where Ben gets out a gun and he accidentally shoots, <laughs> shoots one of them um, and they get searched um, and. Ben is just tossed into the bathroom. Yeah, Ben's locked in the bathroom. Where, and Sheldrake. Surprise, yeah, yeah. There's another person in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Sheldrake, played by Gary Marsh, 
chokes him, quote unquote, uh, and Ben falls to the ground, but he pretends to basically be dead. And we see Sheldrake, uh, this other cog in the wheel, getting the diamond necklace. So, um, and through the telegram, um, every the the heist has become clear. He's clearly a part of it. Where was he this whole time? Like <laughs> in the bathroom. It, yeah, because he's. <laughs> no, he wasn't oh, because he's... we get we get noises of someone else creeping around the house earlier. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, because we had other figures earlier on in the movie. It, again, this movie is all over the fucking place. And it's yeah. not it's not until the 40-minute mark that things remotely make sense. Um, but they uh, the, 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 the people uh, tie up um, Forsyth and Miss Aykroyd uh, and... Uh, to so that they can get through with the job um sheldrake comes out of the bathroom and is accosted <laughs> by <laughs> by one of the associates and just they duke it out in a scene that it's one of my favorite moments in the movie because it's just fighting happening because something's well, happening <laughs> and also it's i wish that i had seen this movie prior to going to film school <laughs> because I would have used it as an example for everyone complaining about um, the the fighting cinematography in the Bourne films. To yeah. just say, you know, they got it from Hitchcock. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. Yeah. This, it, it looks handheld. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's I don't think it is because I don't think you got to handhold the cameras back then. No. But I'm, it's that jumbled and the cutting is so rapid. You can't tell what the hell is going on. And, and, and all the sound effects so are clearly long. Foley. Yeah. So it's it's very much like a situation where well if I can if I can get mobile we put stuff in the soundtrack later but you know like it, I it, I don't find it as to, like I mean I don't find the born fights distracting so much as like just I, I get a bit of a headache this comes very close to giving me one because it is like it's chop 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 it's the montage that Hitchcock is in love with but I think that it's just it doesn't really make sense to have this in here other than the fact that it's something I can do to fill the time during this dismal story. <laughs> yeah. You, you will hear if, if you ever listen to interviews with, um with stunt coordinators, one of the things that they talk about a lot when doing coordinating for, for fight scenes is finding the story in the fight and the emotion and the, and the, the character arcs throughout it. Um, and the problem in number 17 is you don't know anything about these people that are fighting or care about them because they literally just got introduced on screen and then have a three minute fight scene that feels like it's a 19 minute fight scene. Yeah. And as we, as we go through this fight scene, um, it's revealed that Sheldrake is the corpse from earlier. So he, (laughs) he, he, Mm -mm. nope. No, no it's... you got that wrong too. This, this is so so confusing. Uh, uh-uh. uh. Sheldrake is who put the corpse there. Sheldrake is the, the yes. Sheldrake is the one who put the corpse there. Because the corpse is Rose Ackroyd's dad. That's right. It's Rose Ackroyd's. It's Mister. It's Mister Ackroyd. Yeah. And he, but they get untied by who? <laughs> they get untied by by Miss by Mister Ackroyd. Y- yeah, Mister Ackroyd. Sheldrake that was in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. So so everybody basically reveals themselves to be who they are and the story starts 
which is getting these jewels across uh, uh, country lines from Britain to Germany. <laughs> mm -hmm. By riding a train to a ferry. Yeah. Because it's going to take them to Germany. And, and that's the second half of the film. Yeah. And you know that your movie is is in trouble when the smartest thing in the movie is the side of a train that says uh, train to ferry from Britain to Germany because it finally explains something. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. And 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 we should say like amidst all the confusion that's going on with whatever this story is where you can't make any sense of it, I there's visual things going on. The fight in the bathroom is very Hitchcockian. Um or the strangulation prior to it is very Hitchcockian the way it's composed and framed and structured. Um it's the you have a point of view with it. But those are moments in a movie, and you can't just have it comprised of only moments. You, it has to fit into the larger frame of the film itself, and I just don't feel like it does it here. Right. Well, it's n n now that now that we're caught up all <laughs> for our poor audience who has not seen this film and is like just bleeding out their ears trying to to keep up with the story. Yeah. Here's what happened. <laughs> there was a jewel heist, and a necklace was stolen. Yeah. And there were the people that were involved in this heist yeah. were a man named Brant yeah. and his wife, mm -hmm. a man named Mr. Aykroyd and his daughter, yeah. a Henry Doyle and a Sheldrake. Yeah. And much like Reservoir Dogs, none of them, except for the couple and the father and daughter, knew each other or yeah. had any history together. They all made this, they all stole this thing, and I don't know... If maybe there's another character that we don't know that took this necklace to the house or why they're all deciding to meet up there. Uh, but it's, it's Mr. It's Mr. Blonde. Didn't you know it was Mr. Blonde the whole time? You can't see Michael Madsen in the movie, but he was a part of the movie. <laughs> of course. Because he's been so, around forever. <laughs> so they're all supposed to meet up at this house where they're going to like collectively, I guess, take the necklace to the train. Yeah. To, to get smug it to where it needs to go. Yeah, to smuggle you it You can't out. break up a necklace and split it however many people are involved that many ways. Yeah. Um, and what happens is prior to at the time that everyone's supposed to meet, Rose Aykroyd receives a telegram from somebody else that we never see. Yeah. Alerting her father that... A detective is on to them. Yeah. Which and it... so Mr. Aykroyd, after receiving that message, decides that he's going to go to where they're supposed to meet. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing get the necklace and take it for himself before the detective can go. But yeah. this other guy, Sheldrake, has had the same idea and catches him and smacks him over the head. Yeah. And therefore, Aykroyd becomes the dead body. Yeah. And I'm assuming that happens just as Ben shows up who's this homeless person looking yeah. to squat in this house. And that scares Sheldrake into hiding. Yeah. And then as Ben goes upstairs, um, this other character, John Stewart's character shows up. The man with the, with the blowing hat shows up. Yeah. Uh, and that's when the movie starts. Yeah. So those are, that's the multitude of things that are in play before this hat blows across the sidewalk. And so yeah. what you are watching are all of these characters that are somehow all involved in the same plot, but still don't seem to know each other. Yeah. Or like each other 
or actually be in cahoots in any way, shape or form carry out this narrative. You know, I'm wondering if it's like Cloud Atlas, where everything's just connected tangentially through time and history, because that seems like the only way you would be able to understand everything going on in this movie. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I guess that's why we spend the last 40 percent um, on on a model train is because at the end of the day, we're all just stuck on a train track moving ever towards our splash into the <laughs> into the water. So yeah. what has come before and what is going on now matters not. Yeah. The arrangement of the train cars do not matter because ultimately we will all be rubble at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, exactly. But so we when they're tied up again after being tied up previously, um, Nora, the deaf and mute girl, says, don't worry, I'll be back. So clearly she's been lying. So now we throw a whole other character trait into this. Mm -hmm. Her betrayal is completely unclear. <laughs> she's not really she's just clearly she's just turning on him going like i don't want to go through with this like maybe she's just had second thoughts about this entire heist but and was just playing a game to you know get these jewels out but it, it it's unclear anytime they try to explain it it's still unclear so mm -hmm. we're basically just kind of left to watch it visually play out if you turn the sound off on this movie it would make just as much sense and yeah, actually, I, I will say that as, you know, as hard of a time as I'm giving the film, yeah, the one thing that I really was lamenting while I was watching it was having to see this in below SD quality um, as some bootleg rip that yeah. I found on some streaming site that I wonder how much more clear who people were and and what the geography of the scenes were and what they were doing would have been if I would have been able to actually make out who they were and they yeah. weren't all just these sort of like amorphous blobs. You know what? You know what's funny? You bring that up about being amorphous. The characterization of these characters, which I don't blame uh, Alma Revel, Hitchcock, um, uh, or uh, Ackland uh, when it comes to uh, this script because they're clearly working off of a stage play where things are established, but these. These characterizations blend so much that when they're being tied up and um, the detect our detective friend is basically uh, being told to uh, put his hands behind his back so that he can be tied up, um, this guy pulls out a gun and says, please. <laughs> like, so it's all very polite British criminals who rarely get into a tussle up until the third act. Mm -hmm. They're literally just talking out the issues. And going back to the Reservoir Dogs of it all, the difference between this and a Reservoir Dogs is in Reservoir Dogs, when they're talking, it has something to do with what's going on. <laughs> or it has characterization, or it has an emotion behind it. And I don't feel like any of them are giving any emotion outside of Ben. Like, Ben's well, the, the only yeah, character. Because they are literally, as you end up finding out at the end, mm -hmm. all playing the exact same thing. Yeah. In terms of like from an acting standpoint of like what is, you know, what's my motivation? What, you know, what's the um, what's the subtext that they're all they're all pretending to be someone they're not or yep. pretending to be doing something they're not doing except for Ben. Because um, yeah. because he's genuine. <laughs> yeah, because he's genuine. Yeah. Um, and and so it because they're all playing the same thing, it really robs 
the actors in a certain in a certain manner the ability to differentiate themselves from one another. Yeah. Um, and from a casting standpoint, when you cast two pale, dark haired women mm-hmm. in a movie, y- you can't tell who's who in some scenes, especially when it's lit in this very, you know, low key, yeah, you know, horror haunted house way. And there, there's a lot of shadow and a lot of, you know, the key lights are, are, are almost overexposed. It's really hard to tell who is who. And then everyone else in the film, except for Ben, because he's so clearly this disheveled homeless person. Yeah. Um, is like, they're all dressed exactly the same and they're all, you know, old white men. Um, yeah. and, so they, it's really difficult to, to tell who's doing what and who wants what and who's trying to achieve what. Two of them have mustaches that are similar, and it's hard to just – if it weren't for the fact that one is clearly larger and one is clearly smaller, I would not tell these two apart. Like that, that is literally it – is, it is an example of like you were talking about motivation. The motivation is read the line. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's pretty much all that's happening. And, and again, it, it – it stems into like this is something that clearly just is it's an assignment and it's going to be done. You can tell when a film from the golden age of Hollywood or early cinema in general is an assignment by the way people are acting on set and by the way it's directed. And you can tell that direction whether somebody's trying to go for uh, an ambitious shot or if they're literally just sticking the camera there. It's yeah. the difference between... Like I mean, the only director that I know in the history of in, of film entirely who gets away with just sticking the camera in front of people and doing it correctly is Kevin Smith because at least he has something interesting going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, he could literally have a walked off one shot. Something interesting's happening because those two characters are talking about many different vulgar things that don't need to be mentioned on this show. Right. Um, well, and and yeah, and, and Smith is telling this very. Um, you know who the characters are and what they're talking about. Yeah. If, if he was trying to be fancy with the camera, it would ruin the film. Yeah. No one would believe it. You'd stop, you'd stop caring about these characters. You'd be like, stop that. Stop yeah. that. You don't need that. It'd be distracting. So it's, Cause it's yeah. Yeah. It fits. I mean, I think that, you know, an, another thing to, another way to look at it with number 17 is nothing of any consequence happens no. in the film. Um, a character, our main character, in fact, is literally shot and it looks like this, it, it, I think that Richard Donner in Superman stole the scene where the mugger goes to shoot Lois yeah. Lane and Clark Kent catches the bullet. It, that's lit, it looks like I was watching a Superman film the, that he reached out and grabbed the bullet from hitting one of the women. Yeah. I couldn't tell you who it was at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and then you end up finding out that like maybe he was shot in the wrist, but they wrap a handkerchief around it. And that is the last you hear of it. Yeah. It's not even, it's not mentioned. Like, it's not even like a motivation for anger for him to be even more motivated to do something. Like, it it, it does nothing. Anything nope. that happens doesn't matter. It's. <laughs> There's a giant, a giant train crash. Everyone survives. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but here's, yeah. so here's the thing we will get to, though, in this is that when we get into the train. Hmm. Even as things are still not happening that matter, we see the beginnings um, or the early the early goings on of what would become a very famous Hitchcock trope, which is action on trains or train sequences in general. Um, and this one in particular, with the utilization of you know stock footage and models, 
it looks pretty cool. Like it doesn't look, um, I, I, you know, when you talk about a film of this early era, it's hard to say like, you know, like things look genuine or real, but you know, I believe the models that he's utilizing combined with the footage that he's shooting to create that sequence. Like it, yeah. it, I'll, I'll say the, the, the very humbling thing to me about this film, um, and to a degree also, I made a similar note with, uh, the next film we'll talk about waltzes from Vienna. Um, is that this film reminded me just just through and through of a student film. Yeah. In all levels of what this film is doing, of the just like really droll dialogue with, I'm going to get super stylistic with the lighting and the camera angle, but not really have anything much to say. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have this action scene with, no stunt coordination that's just going to like kind of go on too long because I want to have a fight. I'm going to have characters show up out of nowhere and no consequence to anything. Yeah. And then I'm going to be just barely over ambitious with my special effects, like putting a train, a model train on a train track and trying to film it in a way that is, is exciting and it's actionable and then try to cover it up with stock sound effects yeah and just and take the same little loop of a train of a train noise and just loop it over and over and over again yeah so every four seconds you hear the exact same like tick in the audio yeah. it just this movie so much so reminded me of a student film and i think that again the humbling aspect of that is like for me it was like oh this is why if you're a creative person mm-hmm. and a filmmaker in, in particular is like this is why you need to make movies every chance that you can yeah, because this is Hitchcock, like the same guy who made Psycho, who made The Birds, who made Vertigo, who made North by Northwest, made Number Seventeen, and those movies that I just mentioned would not have been possible if he had not made Number Seventeen. I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, and and we're, we're when we talk about, I, I think I firmly believe when we talk about, um, I think this extends primarily to people who judge early Hollywood and her early uh, films in history with a sharp eye of going like, Oh, well it's, it's boring. It's stilted and nothing happens. It's like, yeah. Cause the craft was learning. Like it's the, when the, by the time number 17 comes out, the industry of film is like barely 40 years old mm-hmm. is literally just beginning to move its legs around. And th- with the advent of sound, you have a whole other element into the mix that you didn't even realize. It's like, it's it's like trying to still learn how to run your life while realizing the midlife crisis is on the way over. You know, like you've got to balance 500 things in your head. Then in the case of this train sequence in particular, you know, um, prior to that, like sequences of that nature combined with sound were pretty rare. So you have a filmmaker who's trying out something he hasn't tried out before that he clearly is fascinated by and then would repeat and go like, okay, I've got the lady vanishes in front of me. Well, I did something like this in number 17. What if I can uh, stretch, stretch out things happening on a train to an entire film? And how can I make that fascinating? Mm -hmm. Or I would put it up to foreign correspondent. You know, you have a wonderfully extravagant uh, climax that takes place on a plane crashing. And that stuff doesn't happen until you have something like number 17 to suggest, I've got this big set piece. What can I do with it? Okay, it didn't quite work this time, but the idea is there. It's, yep. it, you know, there's a, it, you know, a lot of shit gets thrown Michael Bay's way, and I, I'm guilty of it as well. 
you cannot say that Michael Bay is not an innovative director in his own right. There are things he does in the Transformers movies, movies that I do not like by any stretch, that then find themselves uh, placed firmly in later films that have some form of merit. Like, oh, he, yeah, he, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, minus the the misogyny, I'm a Michael yeah. Bay apologist. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, my, Michael Bay single handedly changed uh, the modern action film. Like, yep. the modern action film can can write a thank you letter to one person, and yep. his name is Michael Bay. And I'm sure he lovingly tosses that note in the garbage, <laughs> but, but it's true. Like, and this is, and if we're going to bring it into Hitchcock's world, you know, like he sets up the possibility of what can, can happen. You know, obviously Hollywood, when he's in Britain making these films, Hollywood's doing extravagant things all across the board, regardless of the restriction of sound, they're still finding a way to do extravagant things, whether it's musicals that are locked off, but you have this immense choreography by, choreographers ranging from the gamut of Broadway's highest talent. And with Hitchcock, he's setting up these big spectacle set pieces. It's clear what kind of filmmaker Hitchcock wants to be. He wants to be a filmmaker that Hollywood could then grab and pick up and take Mm -hmm. over to Hollywood. Um, But so with this climax, you know, amongst all the other character things happening, Doyle, uh, claims to be Barton, the detective. It goes nowhere because they all fight on the train, and nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no, there's no actual. Yeah, I guess like it's that's the thing is like I, even after having watched the film, and being able to piece together what happened before the film started, I still don't understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. Because it's like if if the goal was to all meet up at this house where maybe one of them is bringing the necklace or where someone else has brought the necklace, again, unclear. Regardless, if the plan is to all meet up and collectively take this necklace to the train, to the ferry, then who cares who has the necklace if that's the plan? So this fighting over the necklace makes exactly no sense amongst any of the thieves. Yeah. It just it utterly doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And you know, this train crashes into the ocean in a spectacular fashion with the with the with the combination of all the different miniatures and models that he's using to create that spectacle. They're all pulled out of the water. Doyle um is still going along with the with the fact that he's Detective Barton except the actual Detective Barton who is John Stewart reveals his card and so Doyle's going to be arrested for everything. Um, the Nothing really happens to Nora. Uh, and the last shot of the film is Ben with the diamonds because he got it at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, nothing happens to Nora, nor to Rose Aykroyd, nor to her father. No, no. They're, um, they're, com- they're forgotten. Didn't you forget they're nothing? <laughs> yeah. Utterly, utterly forgotten. Yeah. yeah it's, it, it's wild. It is. Yeah. It, yeah it's something else. It's, it's. Number seventeen, I think, can be dialed down to, or like or broken down to a simple thing, and this is just, you know, this is from the Hitchcock Truffaut book. He called it a disaster, and it's what it is. When we talk about a disaster in the terms of film today, I'd venture that 
th there are few that can uh, claim to be completely incomprehensible. Um, I, I wouldn't say that you can't follow number 17. I would just say that you can follow it even though it doesn't make sense because it's just 64 minutes and you're in and you're out. Like it's not asking like it's not a commitment. It's not like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy where you're being asked to follow 500 plot lines that don't always come out to anything. Although mm -hmm. I love that movie. It, not everything in it is functioning at a rate that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, at the at the end of the day, I think that number 17 fails because it's a 35-minute movie that's stretched into a, a longer one, a twice-as-long film. You could, it, you could, yeah, you could cut this down and make it Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That's how... Un, yeah, it's a one-act play. Yeah. Is what it is. It's a, it's, it's a one-act play in which, I don't know if someone was selling a toy train... Or something like that, but was like, well, you know, we can pad this runtime by like quite a bit if we just uh, throw a I, camera around on a train track for I, a little while. I got a contract from a place called Tyco, and they really want their train in my movie. So what can I do? Well, I, this didn't work out, but I do like trains. What can I do with that? No, nothing comes. It, it, it's... The thing that kept going through my head as I was watching it was the Monty Python, just like, it's only a model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is everyone so panicky? Like, it's only a model. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and you know, and Truffaut, uh, Truffaut responded to it. He said he found it funny, but the story was rather confusing. So it's not just us, guys. Francois Truffaut couldn't follow this fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Reading Reading through the interview pieces in the, Hitchcock Truffaut book about all the films that we watched. Yeah. Um, it, it was so interesting to me how Hitchcock's response to the questions was basically acknowledging that Truffaut had asked a question and then he just started talking about one of his modern films. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially that... like I, I do not want, I do not want to talk about these things. I don't care about these old films. Let me just tell you about this thing that happened in North by Northwest. If if Hitchcock doesn't acknowledge it as a Hitchcock film, he won't discuss it. Any yeah. type of research that I've been able to do with what resources I have leads me to just this is something he did because he had to do it or it's something that didn't work out in his favor. He doesn't talk a lot about Dial in for Murder in, in um, Hitchcock Truffaut that much at all. So, mm -hmm. no, and, not that and, much. And the same goes with... Um, uh, a couple of other films in his oeuvre that I'd love for him to have discussed more. But like the, the bottom line is, is that this, if he, if it, if it caused him pain or frustrated him, he's not going to talk about it. <laughs> like, yeah, he, he will not suffer those, those films lightly. And, uh, you know, this film is, is basically just, uh, people were confused and, you know, rather, you know, just put off by it. Um, and you know it's it, it it's it's one of those Hitchcock films that has like a very low rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So like, from a even from a modern context, people still find this film to be rather pedestrian and uh, just. It, and there's lots of different like of the time cliches. There's a there's an attempt at being a comedy thriller that doesn't quite work. But like the 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 saving grace of it is the these train sequences and the the further evolution of shot composition, shot composition and um, uh, uh, different suspense techniques that he would perfect down the line. Um, 
like I like I was alluding to earlier, the bottom line is that this felt like a modern. There's a there's a speed to this film that suggests what a modern horror movie ends up doing today. And I'm not talking about a horror film like um, some of the more eloquent ones that we've been receiving, but uh, they're films that I enjoy. But like films like Saw or House of a Thousand Corpses, where things are moving at a kinetic speed that is so rapid that just like the story is kind of irrelevant. You're just watching the things that are happening in it. The difference yes. is is that stuff happens in a Saw movie and a House of a Thousand Corpses movie, but nothing's really happening here. <laughs> so right, so right. It, yeah. There's an interesting aspect of the cinematography. Speaking of the visuals, that is, um, was sort of an interesting thing to experience. You know, coming from a Hitchcock film, early Hitchcock film. Um, you know, giving it benefit of the doubt where it's due, um, is that there are individual shots, especially in the opening sequence opening 20, 25 minutes in that, that take place in the house mm -hmm. where that the shots themselves are fantastic and they're amazing and wonderfully composed and phenomenally lit, but nothing is consistent no. from shot to shot to shot. And it's actually really hard to keep track of not, not, not necessarily the geography of where people are, but of who can see what yeah. and what is hidden and what is not hidden and what is seen and what is not seen. I mean, the, the, the yeah. opening shot with who you, who ends up being Barton coming up the stairs and Ben is at the top of the stairs where he's discovering the dead body. You have Ben looking over the banister, looking down and then a shot to Barton looking up and they can't see each other. Yeah. As you end up coming to find that they're both staring at each other and they're both perfectly lit and they cannot see each other. Yep. But then later on, there's faint shadows in the background that they both turn and react to. And there's, it's, there's inconsistency as a whole, Yeah, individual pieces in that sequence. They're gorgeous, gorgeous shots. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I was going to say that there within that, you know, like, I, well, one, I, as you were saying, eye lines mean nothing in this movie, but also the, the, there's compositions of this film. And I talked to, or we talked earlier about silent film going into sound film. There are par portions of this film where the close-ups on people only work for silent film. Um, and, I, and I refer directly to moments uh, specifically with Ben where yeah. there is nothing in the background. It is just his face. And the only time that those close-ups work in sound movies is when you have like a distinctive stylistic design behind them. Um, or if you're making a horror movie where there is supposed to be something in the back. But this mm -hmm. is not trying to be really a horror movie. It's trying to be like a, a caper of sorts, like a, or a light thriller. But there's, but they're not, they're not playing into that motif within the editing. There's a reaction shot of him where it's there's like just black around him, and it's just his close up. It's unclear what he's looking at because then it quick cuts a bunch before something happens. Yeah. So and the the lighting and the facial expression is like it's near Kabuki. Yeah. Um, and it and it feels like the topness. Yeah, and it feels like this is something that came out of what the lodger would have been. If this was a silent movie, it would make much more sense. Like or at least you'd be able to follow things better. All you'd have to do is have dialogue or uh, di title cards and dialogue cards every so often just to set up a, even a character or even just a line of dialogue that says this is what we're here to do. You don't need the filler that we have that doesn't explain anything it's almost like the way you're describing the plot and we've been talking about this plot you could chalk it up to some dialogue cards that are just vague enough to work and then just make it a silent movie where action is happening 
if this was pure cinema, maybe it would be more enjoyable. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, at the, <laughs> I think my, and even that's was, stretching it, you know? Yeah. I think if rather than being number 17, if this was number eight and a half, it would be <laughs> a tolerable film. You cut everything in half, the yeah. runtime, the cast, yeah. um, the the amount of time spent on the train like yeah you just cut everything in half or or and find a way sense. to explain things up at the top without having to drudge us through this house wondering what's happening bef- it's one of those moments where i'm just like i would like to see the bank robbery before they go to the hideout you know like it would help me make it would help it would help the story function a little bit like mm-hmm. the tiniest bit well you have i mean you know you've you know, Zach, we've talked about you've started to do some some work with sound design, yeah, um, and and that sort of thing. So, you know, coming at a film like this with that approach to say, okay, I'm going to take away your ability to do dialogue, to do sync sound, yeah, um, and you know, thinking about what this film could be if again you cut this cast in half, and so yeah. you can even start out the same way. It's the exact same, you know, exact same story parameters, yeah, um, but you have. You have Barton arriving at the house with Ben there. Yeah. And another thing is this is a three-story house and you only ever see two levels. Mm-hmm. Think about what an amazing amazing experience and what an amazing um, uh, feat it would be from a sound perspective Yeah, to, to team these two unlikely people up of this upstanding British person mm-hmm. and this, you know, homeless person. Yeah. And to watch them creeping around the house... Mm-hmm. needing to be quiet so you take away your ability to even have dialogue even if you did have sync sound yeah and they hear people creeping around on different levels because yeah. someone is in the house with them and it's supposed to be kept yeah and and they come across a dead body or you know discover the telegram and that's part of rather than using dialogue we can just read the dialogue rather yeah. than having the you know the daughter say here's what the telegram says yeah um that i think that yeah it would be an interesting sort of exercise you couldn't make a, a feature-length movie out of it i don't you know it doesn't need to be that long but i think from that sound design perspective from approaching it as a silent film i think would actually be a, kind of a an interesting experiment i think well and and here's where here's where i had problems with the sound and th- my problems with it are ones that are coming f- strictly from a modern perspective. And I always have to keep in mind, they are working with technology that they still don't know all the ins and outs of yet. Um, obviously I would like more of a sound design around them creeping around the house. Now, mm. if you had to take that out, I, that's why I would recommend it being strictly a silent movie and not having those dialogue scenes and finding a way to fill the, what would have been those dialogue scenes with something of action going on that helps move the story along within silent film? You're able to do like, I mean, the, the Chaplin's the kid is about 53 minutes. So it's roughly 11 ish minutes more, uh, less than number 17, but we see an entire story happen in the kid, you know, and we don't, and there's moments in this film where I'm like, you know, for all the talking that they're doing, They could be doing like different little investigations around the house to try to figure out what's going on. And through the purposes of what we would call like mime acting or silent film acting, you could imply different clues that lead to what's going on rather than having a convoluted reservoir dog esque 
robbery plot and escape plan. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, and and I agree with you that if you take that stuff out, it would be interesting as an experiment. Like I'd actually like to take the film itself and just edit out those chunks and see if it makes any sense whatsoever. Like <laughs> that that would be fascinating. Yeah. But you know, again, like it's it's one of those like coulda woulda shouldas and again i can't always give it too much flack because it's it's a film that's that that one the director does not want to make it and number two you're working with virtually nothing that is coming from the source of nothing so yeah. obviously this is this is a situation where it's like I, this is an assignment film i'm just going to do with what i can Right. Um, and and again, like, you know, looking at it as a from an inspiration or as an inspiration point and, yeah. and a, from a learning lesson standpoint of as a filmmaker, or as a creative person, um, it's, you know, I think that there's this other aspect. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, well, it's an early film. So he didn't know enough to make it better yeah. or to massage these things out. And I think that an, a, another interesting thing that is learned through experience is not just how to fix stuff or not just how to make stuff better, but to also learn when you just don't do it Yeah, to when it's not worth it to look at the material and say, this is not worth the blood, sweat and tears that it's going to take to make this tolerable. So the right answer is to say no. Yeah. Um, And yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, the fact that he refuses to talk about the movie and when he does, it's, it's a disaster, but here's this really amazing story about the time I tried to, have a whole scene involving cats in yeah. the uh, running up the stairs, yeah. which if you don't have the Hitchcock Truffaut book, go out and buy it right away. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's also the audio excerpts of those interviews are available all on YouTube. Um, do those and the book. You don't need to watch that documentary on it. It's a very good ad for the book, but um, you know, and, and with that, with that note on the sound design it's interesting rewatching this film. And thinking about universal horror films, which are coming out around the same time. And if you watch Dracula and Frankenstein, those are two films as masterful as they are in their own rights. I mean, Frankenstein is obviously better than Dracula. I, I like them both. They're, they're both great. They're wonderful. They've got wonderfully creepy people in them. Um, but they, they also are devoid of sound design because they are still in the early processes of understanding how to tell these stories. A good example is that Todd Browning directs Dracula. It's a stage play. I love mm. I love uh Todd Browning's Dracula, but it's it's a play. The the most visually interesting things happen in Dracula's castle and then we're whisked off to a, a drawing room drama. Yeah. Um until the very end when they're back in the catacombs. And when things are happening when people are approaching, they're still relying on the image itself and not the things you can do to enhance it. Right. And then this film, at times, is overdoing it, um, especially near the climax. Like, the train sequence, as good as it is, is full of sound design that, as you said earlier, is looping and repeating. And, and it's a cacophony. It's, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, I it's, will... it's sensory overload. <laughs> yeah, it actually, I, I will not um, lie, it put me to sleep. Um, <laughs> and, and, and not... I don't like, yes, it's way too long. And yes, not a lot happens. And what happens is like not particularly interesting. And, 
and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what put me to sleep was not that it was boring. It like literally, it was like being put on top of a washing machine in like a baby carrier. It just like yeah. the, the rhythmicness of the same effects being used over and over and over again. Yeah. With just like the wind going by and every single car had its own, its own type of sound design, but they kept revisiting the same train cars yep. that it was just, it was this very weird drumming and of, of, or thrumming of, of the same sound. And it just conked me out. <laughs> I saw the end of the film and then had to rewind it all the way back to when they were still in the house and watch it through again to be like, okay, what happened? Where do these people go? Yeah. Um, and, and, and did you find Marshall that it didn't matter? <laughs> Cause I'll, I, yeah, I mean, my, my big thing at the end was like, oh, no, like what happened to Rose Aykroyd? Like, I really liked her. I thought she was super sweet. And then I, <laughs> I got back to that point in the film and it kept going. And I went, oh, she literally just disappears from the movie. Yeah. OK, so and so, <laughs> she, yeah, it's just like, nope, we're done. Look, Goodbye. Look, 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 Marshall, I I I'm going to reveal it now. Um, the, the bottom line is, is that Anne Casson, uh, had an offer to do uh, a play entitled, uh, the donkey dance. And it was 10 times more interesting and fascinating than the movie that we made. So I just had to let her do it. I, I, I have no other reason other than this donkey dance, which is a masterpiece. If you haven't seen it, it's pro it's lost, but you know, find it. And then you can see how it is 10 times better than number 17. Um, oh, we but, all know it's just because she had brown hair. Yeah, oh, yeah, really too many mean. brown haired girls here. Not, not enough blondes. <laughs> in fact, there's no blondes in this movie. Alma, why did I agree to make this? Oh, yeah, because I was assigned it because this is the studio era. Um, but I was going to say, I want to read the review that Variety wrote. Oh, please. Oh, so this is this is an excerpt from this review. Um, and this is from August of 1932. Like the play, the story is vague, and despite its intended eeriness, unconvincing. It is asking a lot of an audience, even a picture one, even a picture one, to make them believe a woman accomplice of a band of thieves will fall in love at first sight with a detective and prevent his being done in by her associates. And then the review also stated that the cr train crash is very good, but not sufficient to make it anything but a program feature. So, ouch. But, yeah, <laughs> that's what's there. Yeah, I mean, harsh but fair. Yeah, it's, it's you know, Variety, Variety conked it on the nose right there. So, you know, this, this film is done, obviously, Hitchcock, right after this. He's given another assignment, and this is two years. Uh, this film comes out two years after number 17, so there's a two-year gap. And... We're suddenly thrown into Hitchcock making a musical. In quotes. Yes, in quotes. This is uh, this this film is uh, to to explain what Waltzes from Vienna is. We should start by talking a little bit about the the um, uh, the the uh, the musical itself. Um, it's it's based essentially on the creation of the Blue Danube. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And the fictionalized creation of it. Yeah, the fictionalized creation of it. Um, like the, the the full plot taking place in 1854, and about the rivalry between Father Strauss and Son Strauss of so Johann Strauss specifically. The the uh, 
this rivalry between them and how it forms the Blue Danube in order to prove that I'm worth more than you tell me I am, Daddy. That it's Daddy issues. It's it's a Daddy issue movie, Marshall. We're going to talk about Daddy issues today. A, yeah, rich white people, Daddy issues. <laughs> rich white Daddy issues. That's what I'm here for today. No, I didn't want to do this one either. It's that there was nothing else to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was originally this operette. Yep. In, I think it was in 1917. Is that my memory? I get that right. Um, by Heinz Reichert. Yep. Ernest. I can't pronounce that. Ernst Marischka. Marischka. We'll Ernst Marischka. Alfred Maria Wilner, and Heinz Reichert. Yeah. Um, and it was arranged by Eric Wolfgang Korngold and Julius Bittner. Um, and it was performed for the first time. This musical is performed for the first time in Vienna in October 1930. And, oh. um, and the, uh, there was an English adaptation of it called The Great Waltz that played on Broadway in 1954. Um, and an English version that played in London in the 70s. Um, so this musical is then handed off to um gamo Brit british gamo and it's the only project that hitchcock is able to be given essentially he uh th there's a basic um understanding that uh hitchcock told Truffaut he only agreed to make it because he had no other film projects that year and he wanted to stay working which goes back to what you were talking about of always find a way to just keep making films regardless of what's going on mm -hmm. you know you still you still work regardless, you know. Don't do what I did and have a nervous breakdown and stop making movies, because then that just leads you to no, making podcasts and talking on Zoom. But, <laughs> um, but no. So, but the result is Waltz is from Vienna, um, uh, and uh, it also really? has the title Strauss's Great Waltz as well. Only in the U.S. for some yes. reason. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, it's. <laughs> Don't get us started on cha title changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, amen. We can go amen. off on a whole tangent there, but this is also like this has a a, a cyclical presence uh, in the regards of British cinema, operetta films, um, and it's a musical genre um, uh, uh, associated with mainly German cinema, uh, and it began in the late twenties and. But these operettas themselves, not related to film, stretch back to Vietnamese, Viennese operettas in the 19th century. So um, there, there are some silent films that have stage operettas going on, but it wasn't until sound films that they were able to really capitalize on these types of films, obviously because you need sound to do music, and... Um, Melody of the Heart um, is a German film directed by Hans Schwartz. It's one of those first films to really do that genre. And um, Britain had its cycle of operetta films, and uh, uh, Waltzes from Vienna is one of them. Um, directed by me, I guess. Produced by Tom Arnold. No, not that Tom Arnold. He was a theatrical producer in the U.K., um, who worked on many different things, amongst other things, casting Ivor Novello from The Lodger as Henry V at Drury Lane in 1938. So uh, clearly a, a man of the stage. Um, screenplay by Guy Bolton and Alma Revel coming back here. Uh, starring Esmond Knight, Jesse Matthews, Edmund Gwen, and Faye Compton. 
uh, along with a uh, slew of other supporting characters. Um, so when you uh, agreed to first come on this podcast, uh, also almost back a year ago now when we were going to talk about Psycho, did mm -hmm. you think we'd be talking about Hitchcock's only musical? Be honest with me. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you and tell you I didn't know that Hitchcock had an only musical. It's it's tough to imagine. It's one of those things you find out and you're like, oh, I've got to watch that. And the first time I watched it was when it was first made available on YouTube. So this is not even something that I like grew up with or anything. Mm. This is just something that you find and you watch. Um, and it's not one that's on the bootleg sets that I've had. So it was it's it was a revelation to watch it because not everything in the like, much like everything we've been discussing, not everything is worthless in this movie. But. Yeah. And it's, it is. And I do like you know. I do think it is worth saying. Um, if anyone out there hears musical and just like no thanks, um, this is for all intents and purposes not a musical. It is a movie with, I think, three singing scenes in it. But this it is, is it isn't like the furthest stretch of the imagination and like, there's no way that, it's just not a musical. I'm just yeah. like, I'm sorry. It's not, it's a movie. It's about music. Um, and I think there are three, three scenes of singing in it. So we'll watch it as a, as a way to see some early Hitchcock. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And the, 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 one of the keys to this is that Hitchcock stripped a lot of the music out that was in the original musical and turned them instead into, um, uh, he he basically kind of really focuses on the Blue Danube itself. Um, and in addition, he changed the ends of the story from the stage musical. Uh, in the in the musical, um, uh, one of our uh, the the baker's daughter character that we'll talk about decides that her father's um, uh, apprentice, Leopold, would make a more suitable husband. And, um, uh, and then Shawnee's kind of just left off to the dust. Um, we'll talk about these characters in a way that'll make sense. But I wanted to point that out because... This is also another pointed example of how uh, prior prior properties are changed in order to kind of make a more filmic ending or something that makes sense to a mass audience because not everybody will have access to the theater even back in the 30s in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it, but and this is and it might be for the better in terms of just making the film watchable. I don't know because. This film's rather light and airy and obviously has zero like virtually the suspense around this film lies in how will this love triangle be solved <laughs> that's the suspense yeah i mean i think that you know this film is if i'm being kind near insufferable yeah um for the first half of the film and and uh, I kept watching it because I was going to be on a podcast, which I had to keep talking about it. And you regret um, every minute of it. <laughs> no, I, I really don't. There's there's a moment that happens um, towards the end, which well, I know we'll get to in the plot synopses. But I I recognized in myself that I have not cared about anything that has gone on. I do not care about this debutante white aristocrat ish, these issues. Um but I am honestly hanging on the edge of my seat about what is about to happen here. Yeah. And that is, that's a master at work. And, yeah. and, it, and again, whether it's, he didn't have the, the, the skill know-how of being able to 
put the rest of the pieces in place around the, the story of the film or whatever it is, or whether it was he didn't care or was just trying to work or didn't know enough to say no, I, I don't, I don't know, but I did recognize in myself that like no one else could have made me feel the way that I'm feeling right now at this point in the story. Yeah. Except for Hitchcock. Yeah. He's not, I will say that like, with the film like obviously you're you know it is this is viennese aristocrats they your your relation to them in a modern context is not going to matter unless this musical was somehow the biggest thing ever like it had to, it would have had to if, if we were talking about somebody saying i want to remake waltzes from vienna today there must have been a revival that was as big if not bigger than hamilton to justify that because that's the only way that a story like this matters much because it's about a a kid who has a respectable father who has to make a choice between making music or having a steady life as a baker with a woman who cares for him <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and it's that old age old thing of art versus reality uh and just like you know do you settle down or do you keep making your art or whatever but the way it's told i agree with you I don't really care about their problems. And yet I really want to know how the Blue Danube is going to come out. <laughs> I really want to know how that's going to happen. Yeah, I want to know how this party is going to like come together. Yeah, exactly. And there's a slew of characters that like it. it's not like anything. Th this is because this is a musical. This is also de facto a comedy. And the comedy oh. is not up to the snuff today even even considering the aging of everything like there are comedies from back in this era that still work today this isn't one of them well this is yeah i i will say there's this amazing disconnect between in 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 both this to a, to a small extent in in number 17 but most obvious in, in secret agent which we'll get to but this huge disconnect between the dialogue being so tight and just like really funny and biting and that just like that wonderful British sardonic clipping that yep. is really amazing. And then th all of the physical comedy being the most vaudevillian, like elementary, like this is beneath this work, let alone the director and Alma and like all of the people who are involved. It's like, it's just, this is stupid shit. What? And, and up against the, you know, the instances of tight dialogue and the yeah. really funny exchanges going on. It's a really weird contrast. Mar Marshall, you didn't, you didn't even see the deleted scene where I had a trained seal being fed fish every time he tossed a ball with his nose. You know, that, that was going to be a, <laughs> That was George Burns was going to have a cameo. That's right. I knew who he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're oh, right. No. It's it's vaudeville to a T. And I'm a guy who likes this stuff. You know that about me. Um, and I'm sure the audience at this point knows it too. I, I will I will fall head over heels in love with some vaudevillian pratfalling. In the case of this film, I feel like it. Uh, it's 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 many shots removed from the elegance of anything silly that could happen in Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it's not, it, there is no, uh, there's no reason to really have it other than to create some fun little banter and whatnot. Yeah. But it, uh, but it, yeah, it feels such a large part of the 
film. Um, and again, I mean, you know, I mean, talking about things that don't matter and have no consequence, the entire, the beginning of the film starts out with a building is on fire yeah, and two people are upstairs and don't know and don't care. Yeah. Which, which um, now from a thirties perspective, we're probably led to believe, Hey, you know, we're, um, uh, we're, we're in love. So it doesn't matter if a building's on fire today. We look at that and go, that building's on fire. <laughs> Get the fuck out of the house. Yes. Um, but like, and again, that's not to, that's not to say we're smarter than a film of that era. But it 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 does look strange, especially today. And I'm I'm fairly sure it felt strange even then because you're sustaining that sequence for so long. Like it lasts longer than it should. Mm-hmm. Like it should start with them basically doing their banter. Meanwhile, the building's on fire. Then we cut to the ladder. But we have a lot of time wrapped around them talking about the formation of this song that he's writing <laughs> and meanwhile yeah. the building is actively on fire <laughs> well and and it's also you know i'm actually the i was extremely f- fascinated to hear you say that in the original um operette um our our love interest end up, ends up going with leopold yeah um because the film the opening sequence is structured in that way. Like I actually, at the first 10 minutes of the film, I didn't know who the protagonist was. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know if you want to jump into cliff notes on the, on the plot before we start talking about this, just to, you know, kind of talk about like what that, what that sequence is about. But, um, you know, there's a fire in a building, fire brigade shows up. Um, there's a couple upstairs. One is, working on a piano uh that is uh our uh johan strauss jr yeah and he's with Shawnee. his girlfriend rezzy yep. um and she is singing and they're working on a thing and and from across the street from the bakery that you come to find her father owns and she also works at uh comes leopold yeah um and, and he comes up a ladder to rescue her yeah there's this tug of war over her in which Johann Strauss, um, or in which Leopold, in, in trying to get him to let go, says, uh, she's not your property. And the response from our hero is, she will be. And and so, yes, I have a much more modern dis- disposition in looking yep. at that. And I almost yeah. you know, oh, threw course, up yeah. in reading that. But the guy, this this lowly other baker comes from across the street and goes, makes his way up a ladder to save this woman. Yeah. And then ends up being kind of turned into a villain at the end of the film. And so it's, I I would be willing to place money on the fact that that changed. Yeah. Um, it about the, the film, if, if she ends up with Leopold in, in the uh, operette. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we, (laughs) There's, there's a, there, there, there's, the, this is a situation where we've talked about in the past where Hitchcock and the way women operate and function in his films isn't always, you know, obviously to the higher standard. We've, we've been fortunate to talk about ones where they have been treated very well um, for the most part. But this is a film that I think it, it, this isn't at Hitchcock's hands. This is at the hands of just trends of the time. Yeah, well, and I think that I think that like the character of Rezzy, 
uh, played by played wonderfully by Jesse Matthews, is actually pretty good. She gets a little dense towards the end. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll admit, um, but she is a she's a very strong, confident woman. Yeah, and she tells her suitor like what she wants, and she's very strong willed about it. And yeah. the movie the movie positions her to be a little bit of a villain about that, but she's not treated as um, as a total airhead and she's not treated as a damsel in distress or anything like that. It's, and, and, you know, these words ultimately came out of two people vying for her love, but just that particular verbiage of she's not your property. She will be. Yeah. Um, but, was, yeah. And that's pretty more what I'm re- Yeah. And that's more what I'm referring to in the regard of just like, it's, this is definitely the 19th century and shit going around regarding like, well, you know, you, you're my woman. So therefore property, you know, like, and obviously Leopold has a friend zone complex written all over him, whatever that fucking means. So like, you know, we're, you know, obviously this is a trope of the period. It's, it's, this is not exclusive to this movie. This happens all across golden mm-hmm. age Hollywood. Um, it, heck, this is, this goes on into the fucking mid two thousands. So like, and beyond, it still happens today. So we're not, we're not talking about anything that's not unknown, um, but it's interesting because of Hitchcock being a director that regardless of the debate does create interesting female characters to, to his own point. This is, a, this is an odd, uh, piece in that certain respect in regards to how she, how she is, uh, how people look at her according from the men's point of view, mm-hmm. um, like it's a conquest or a, a prize. Um, in the, in a two episodes ago, we talked with Matt Willicks about, uh, Grace Kelly being uh, dressed as such to function in tandem with Cary Grant. And by the end, she's in a gold dress and it uh, alludes to the idea of her being the prize at the end of the journey. And like, but that's, that's done through visual cue and not through a story element that is blunt and in your face. Right. Um, so that's, that's what makes it pretty fascinating in that respect. And by the way, as we've been talking, there's still a fire going on. <laughs> <laughs> in the building. And there is some really cool imagery that Hitchcock's able to get from an angle of the fire pump going. Um, it leads to vaudevillian comedy, as you mentioned. But I like that angle and them just pumping it. That seems like something that he would have been able to do in silent film of just hitting on those different angles to in- indicate that the fire is about to be put out without having to rely on, like, actually burning a building down. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it the, the fire sequence did have the only... Um, visual gag that I actually really enjoyed about the film at all. And that's, there's a point where they said, oh no, the fire has spread upstairs. And there's this huge puff of smoke that comes out of the upstairs window. And then yeah. the the fire marshal comes to the edge of the window and he's puffing on a pipe. And yep. he says, the fire is out, it's done. And I was just like, oh, that's that's cute, that's clever. But there's a lot of just like flat out monkey business, trying to get up a ladder and trying to get down the ladder and dresses getting cut on a ladder and people falling in a cake and like it's just it's oh it's a mess you've seen you've seen gangs of new york right oh yeah okay remember the scene when the different fire brigades are fighting each other over who gets to put out the fire and loot things they're more responsible than all these people trying to put out this fire and the people i'm talking about were gang lords in old new york (laughs) with run by tammany hall (laughs) yeah Actually, it was, it was funny. I was thinking at the opening of this when the when the um, fire truck arrives at this place, mm-hmm. everyone 
it looks like they're looting the building, but I'm assuming they're clearing everything out from it. Yeah, they're clearing everything out, yeah. It's, right. it's not but like I'm, Gangs of New York in that respect. <laughs> I'm I'm watching it and I'm saying, "Oh, this is why there are fire lanes in on <laughs> out in front of modern buildings because this truck cannot get anywhere close to this building yeah. that's on fire because these people have just poured these tables and chairs and furniture out immediately in front of this place. And I was like, oh, this is why there are fire lanes. How interesting. Okay, Fun fact, cool. Marshall, I'm the reason you have fire lanes. Thank you very fucking much. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, this, as all this is going on, the Countess Helga von Stahl hears the, hears the music across the way. Not the fire and everything that's going on, but just the, the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From the dressmaker shop, uh, Shawnee and um, uh, Shawnee and um, Rezzy are rescued, quote unquote, by Leopold. Um, and uh, she, um, uh, Rezzy, her dress tears, and she's ridiculed because her dress tears, leaving her in nothing but basically her bloomers. And uh, she runs into the dress shop to um, escape the uh, the the jeering and whatnot. That's right. And, um, it's the dress shop. Dress shop that's across the street. They're actually in the second floor of of the bakery. Yeah, that's they're in the second correct. floor of the bakery. She goes across the across to the dress shop. Right. Uh, I was. And, yeah, I was incorrect earlier. Yeah. And um. Uh. And so um, she goes in. Uh, Shawnee gets the skirt and goes into the shop in search of her, and that's when he meets the countess, and the countess learns that Shawnee is you know aspiring an aspiring musician. And the countess has been writing verses and she wants to know she wants to put some of her verses to music that Shawnee would write. Has she um, been writing verses, though, or does she just is this guy just dreamy and she's a lonely housewife? Well, when we meet, well, not just a housewife, but royalty, sir. Yes, royalty. Yeah, to, to, to me, she's royalty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Max von Sydow, I, I I'm glad you came in for a minute. <laughs> But um no uh she when we meet her um her husband we'll understand why she would do anything include learning to write lyrics <laughs> to get away from him um or oh, at man. least take some time off you know it looks like they're on the ropes marriage wise and she just needs a break man <laughs> like um but so um we've got a romantic triangle set up here when um, as uh, as the countess is giving uh, uh, Shawnee her information, she, Rezzy enters and um, she just immediately becomes suspicious. Like, what are you doing with that woman? You know, and yeah, she knows what's up. Yeah, and and the character is written as such that she will not listen to any explanation whatsoever, regardless of how tangible and realistic it might sound. Which one of the, that's one of the the services that is necessary for the story that they're telling. <laughs> um, but it's almost like she's uh, annoyingly unreasonable. And I feel like that's a bit, the one biggest disservice I have with her character. Um, but you know, it, the way they're writing the story and wanting to tell this story, I completely get it. So, yeah, it's, I mean, cause yeah, cause it, it you know, it's, we're watching a melodrama. It's a yeah. love story and it's this. Yeah. This countess has her eyes on this young artist who's not respected by either his father or, for financial purposes, his lover, his, yeah. his girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of like, is he going to choose 
destitution working at a bakery and so that he can be with his, you know, love of his life? Um, or is he going to follow the rich and fame of the of becoming a composer, which is being promised to him by by this love of this countess? The only problem is that they're trying to follow a traditional love arc of of these two people who start together and are supposed to break apart and then yeah. end up together. But she's the same person who is telling him, don't be who you are. So you have this, this problem of the, the sort of like the want versus the need um, mm -hmm. are in direct opposition coming from the same person. Yep. What her, her want is weird because her want is, I want you to do what you love to do as long as it all revolves around me. Her need is to realize that she needs to let go of him, like let the leash, let a leash off of a bit in order to let him do his musical aspirations. And that's not obviously, you know, the, but I, it feels like it's handled in such a way that it just, the whole, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, man, I really wish they weren't painting her to be such a jerk because. Yeah. Well, cause it's, it's, it's like, she's, she wants him to write music. Yeah. And she wants him to do that until she knows that the countess thinks he's handsome. Yeah. So it turns into a, a weird possession game that demeans all three of them. <laughs> like... Right. And so now you don't know, like, you don't have any person, you don't have any relationship to root for. Because, yeah. you know, you also know that the Countess is being underhanded and is dangling this carrot in front of this, you know, cute young boy. Yeah. Um, and so she's not being forward and she's being manipulative. Um, and and uh, Rezzy is being childish and possessive. Yeah. Um, and so the only thing that you end up caring about is actually what the film and the story is about because it's called what? Oh, Waltz is from Vienna. Uh -huh. So, like... <laughs> That's what the film ends up being about, but it spends so much time around the the love triangle. Yeah. Um, and now, and now, granted, when we talk about musicals all throughout the eras, regardless of whether it's the '30s or today, if you're to, if you're doing a musical surrounded by a historical event or something that actually happened, you obviously tend to you you create a relatable story in order to fill it around the actual historical event for the most part. Like it's that relatable character that you can touch upon. I mean, in the case of something like the greatest showman, they completely reworked an actual figure in history and created new relatable characters in order to tell the story of PT Barnum. And uh, if you haven't seen it, Marshall, you don't need to, it's fine. You don't, it, 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 and Waltz is from Vienna have a very similar problem of just like how much relatability do we create and take away from the context of what actually goes on. Um, and it, the, you're right. I don't really care about that aspect. Like there's no relationships that I'm hooking onto in this movie, except for one. I have one coupling that I care about and they're only in one scene and we're going to get to them here in a second. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I would liken it to 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 give an analogy of sort of how how this film feels and and why I say I don't like any of these characters, I don't care about them, is that it would be if it would be like if in Titanic it was set up that 
uh, Billy Zane's character was the main character <laughs> trying to get Rose, but that Kathy Bates, her Molly Brown also had eyes for Cal. And so it was this love triangle between who's going to, or not even, not even Kathy Bates because Molly Brown's freaking lovable and she's great. So like, Rose's mom, if it wasn't this weird mother-daughter thing. But it would be something like that. It would be if this other rich debutante, some first-leveler, yeah, was also a first-leveler with Rose, and Billy Zane is your main character. It's just like, I don't care. I don't like any of you, and I don't want you to succeed. And it's all placed around this historic event. And it's like, ugh, yeah, it's just, it's, yeah. It's, it's Unless James Cameron told me specifically, look, this movie that's set on the Titanic is strictly about shitty people and why they all deserve to drown. Then if he gives me that context, I'll watch that movie with Billy Zane as the lead. But, you know. Yeah. But, no, but you're then right. your perspective needs to be like an over-the-shoulder from the iceberg. Yeah. And it's sweeping <laughs> in with the Indiana Jones theme to, like, save the day and crash the Titanic. You know what? Fun. F- <laughs> you know, we talked about this early on, but Hitchcock had been um, one of the projects he was going to work on was uh, with Selznick was a Titanic movie, and they actually did a lot of research into it, and wow. uh, were uh, they went on a boat that was going to be serving as the Titanic itself. And Hitchcock, being the director who he was, I imagine that at some point in the production, it would have been like, what if we did it from the perspective of the thing that's going to kill them? <laughs> like, I want to know his story. <laughs> and it would be fucking great. Oh, Probably yeah. not a great movie, but it would have been great to watch it. You just could to slow down and in. drop the pitch of the Jaws theme and have Ooh. that be the iceberg theme. Oh, it's <laughs> it's a mobile iceberg. See, that's the twist Bird, that I'm making. Um... <laughs> yeah. Rose? Sorry, dun, I'm having dun, too much dun, fun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, so... Um, uh, Shawnee goes to rehearse with his father in the orchestra because he works uh, in his father's orchestra. Uh, his father, Johann Strauss Sr., played by Edmund Gwen, who would end up being in a lot of Hitchcock films um, in a career that spanned like all the way up until like he starts. He starts in 1916 and ends up in 1956 with his last film being uh, Calabuck um, or The Rocket from Calabuck. Um, but he he ended up uh, finding himself all over different forms of Hitchcock and just kind of, it's one of those stock English actors that works well for the, for the films that he tells where they can play kind of a stuffy authoritative figure. Yeah. He was Um, famously in them exclamation points. Yep. Um, Um, And he won an Oscar for uh, playing Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th 34th Street. Um, and one of my favorite films that he's in is The Yank at Oxford, um, which is he's wonderful in that film, too. Um, which, uh, another little fun, fun little bit of trivia. If you are watching Hollywood on Netflix, I have not yet. Um, the year that that takes place, the Oscar ceremony that takes place is the one in which he yeah. won for Chris Kringle. Ah, nice. Yeah. Is it, are you liking the show? Uh, I, I really adore it. It is not, it's not, it doesn't end up being what I thought it was going to be. And I'm glad that I didn't read about the, what it actually is and what its purpose as a, as a television series is and what it's trying to do. I'm really glad I didn't know that going in because it was quite a wild ride. Um, but it's, it's a pretty wonderful, like quasi modern approach to that era of, of Hollywood. Very nice. Um, that, and they're that, doing this like kind of weird thing where you can tell that the the actors 
are playing characters, but they're doing it in that sort of style of acting as the as the character part. Mm-hmm. And then they're also acting that way in the films that it's, it's, it's this, this little small nuanced way of doing those things. And it's, it's, yeah, it's very enjoyable. I highly I'll, recommend it. I'll have to check it out then. Um, Gwen though, um, with his involvement with Hitchcock, he kind of, he, the, amongst the things he runs around in, um, he's obviously in foreign correspondent playing Rowley, um, as a cock, he's a, it's a small role in the film. He's a cockney assassin in it. Um, but one of his finest film roles that I think should have won him an Oscar if this film was treated with any respect at the time that it was released is The Trouble with Harry, where he plays Captain Albert, Albert Wiles. Um, uh, he's just wonderful in that film. And it's a it's another situation where, like, some of the better films even still get the shit treatment in the time that they're released. And it takes a little time for them to be appreciated. But if you haven't seen Trouble with Harry Marshall, watch it for him and... Um, uh, well, everybody involved, but he especially he's he, it's it's an old man who's falling in love with another old with another elderly elderly person. It's the sweetest romance you'll ever see in a in a Hitchcock oh, movie, all right. let alone a movie. It's a it's an it's a cute little comedy about how you can't get rid of a dead body. Um, <laughs> um, I'll check it out. Yeah, but so um, anyway, back to uh, Waltz's from Vienna. See how interesting this is that we have to dive into Netflix shows and the trouble with Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, fun, funny little, little again, like speaking to the cleverness in the dialogue, is um, Johann Strauss Jr. is mm-hmm. plays in his father, his very famous father's orchestra, and in yep. that orchestra, he is literally the second fiddle. Yeah, and and I when I heard that, I was like, okay, like I, I can't tell if that's really amazingly clever or like really cheesy as hell, but it was just like, oh, so you. You play second fiddle for your father instead of to your father. Okay, cool. I like it. All right, yeah, I'll go yeah. along with it. It's cheeky placement, and and you know, obviously, that's like I didn't do research into into the actual Johann Strauss family, but like that, if that's a construction of the of the stage musical, that's very clever, and that's something that transfers over. Yeah, the um, the it almost all of this is a construction. There was yeah. no resi, there was no bakery, um, and at the no. time that the Blue Danube was um, composed. Yeah. Uh, Johann Strauss Sr. was already dead. Yeah. So this is, again, just like, this is a situation of just like, look, we want to really tell the story about this wonderful song, but <laughs> we can't do anything real because there's nothing significant. There's, there's, there's nothing intriguingly significant about it. Yeah. Um, but so they get into an argument about, um, about, about just being the second fiddle, literally. Um, and it, he ridicules, his son's work like he just lays into him (laughs) in a scene that i had to rewind it and watch it two other times because i was my my jaw hit my lap hitch flops the 180 line yep in that scene and yeah and in the yeah there's this yeah confrontation between father and son and son saying you know someone's gonna come along and and write better music than you that's that's the way the world works like things keep on turning they keep on getting better and the father sort of prods him and is like oh what you think you're gonna do it well why don't you play something that you've done and sits his his son down at a piano and there's these shots back and forth between them and um and there's this uh uh cinematography idea that that keeps consistent um film the logic of eyeline yeah 
It's supposed to and, um, indicate the space. Right. So yeah, in, indicate the space, and so that when when one character is looking one direction and you cut to the other direction, that it actually looks like they're looking at each other, mm-hmm. and so you can keep track of of what's going on, um, amongst other things. And so one thing you're never supposed to do is cut from the camera on one side of the 180 degree line to this other side of the 180 degree line. And that happens in this scene. And um, I just, there was, yeah, the, the cutting back and forth between father and son. And I kind of went back to my seat and I was like, what just happened there? Did he just, did he just jump the line? And, uh, and I had to rewind it. And I, I was like, he did. And then I rewound it again because like, there's no way I have to be wrong. Rewound it again. Nope. nope. He flopped the line. You think the Wachowskis are the only ones who could do that motherfucker? <laughs> Hitchcock did it first. No, no, it's it's true that it does flip the line. What's interesting is when that prior to that line flip, the uh, angle from the piano to them from afar, it's not strictly Hitchcockian, but just the way it's composed, it suggests a little bit of intimidation for Strauss Jr. That mm-hmm. I was like, that's pretty cool that they're finding a way to make this conversation interesting beyond the squabbling of father and son, and then. You know, with everything boiling to the point that it does, like, I don't know if it's an unjustified or justified 180 line. It, it literally might just be something that just happened and they didn't fix it. Yeah, that, that's, that's my honest opinion. Because it's just, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's just like, well, we're not like, I don't need to change it. It doesn't really affect anything. Like, it doesn't. It 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 stands out to us now because we're not only aware of these rules, but we we are able to frame by frame look and imagine an audience back in 1934. They're not they're They may not notice it right away. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you know, I mean, it's not like they had video playback. <laughs> That'd be um, cool if they did <laughs> to review what they just shot. And so yeah. if it was again, you know, I, I don't, I, I just always think about the, you know, knowing that, the staircase sequence when the detective or the PI first arrives at the at yeah. the house that that was all sh- that there was a first run of that when Hitchcock wasn't there and he was just like meh I'm not gonna show up to set today I'm kind of bored <laughs> um, so knowing that that is a thing that Hitchcock is, is capable of I, I kind of wonder if he was there on set to to pick up on that or notice yeah. it but regardless if it's uh, it's there it's still there in all its glory and the 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 whole confrontation ends up with Strauss Jr. quitting the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are then whisked, we, we are basically whisked over then immediately to the Countess's place. And her of writing the, the lyrics to the Blue Danube, <laughs> the, the verses that, by the way, come to nothing later on down the line. The, the verses mean nothing because all we want to know is how does this music going to play out? Um, and she's writing these verses and in walks her husband, Prince Gustav, <laughs> oh. played by Frank Vosper. He's, it's, it's a, this is a joke, right? <laughs> well, I just, yeah, the, the thing is just like, okay, so then Kenneth Mars, when he was coming up with Inspector Kemp yep. for Young Frankenstein, definitely had watched Waltzes from Vienna, right? Because, yeah, like, well, 
that, or like yeah. maybe three notches up the dial to eleven with Inspector Kemp, where uh, uh, what the, is it? Strauss? No, not Strauss. Uh, Prince Gustav. Gustav. That's it. Yeah. Prince Gustav is. Yeah, I was just like, this guy is a character. Yeah, he's it's 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 almost to, to my mind, it's a little bit if. Yeah, I, I like the Kenneth Mars allegory. I'm gonna one up it a little bit, or not one up it, but add add onto it. It's like if Inspector Kemp and uh, 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 the character that Kenneth Mars plays in The Producers, um, uh, Hans Hans Liebken, had a baby, and it <laughs> turned out to be a goofy aristocrat baby. That's kind of what it is. Yeah, He's, and so to, to to paint the picture, the introduction of this character yeah. is he is asleep in his bed. And he and he's, is waving his arm around wildly and talking as he is having a duel by sword. In for his the sleep. honor of the countess, by the way, should be pointing uh, yes. out he loves his wife to have a fight for her in his sleep. <laughs> in his sleep, and it goes on and on, um, and you will never believe what uh, the climax is built around <laughs> with that sort of a character introduction. It's, it's, it's just. It's it's a goofy scene. I don't mind it on its own because it's just like, oh, this is a thing that was shot in 1934. Just a scene to establish a goofy husband who clearly isn't attentive to his wife's needs. And he's he's aloof. Like he's like he's off in his own little damn world. Like yeah. he. Yeah, it's you know, the. The the film I'm working on, I've, I've got um, a couple writing partners and one of the thing that continually comes up with us is tone and it's sort of like matching this tone and, and because are we're, we're walking a high wire act with, with the story that we're telling and, and the movie we're trying to make. Um, but, um, the idea of like this Coen brothers esque tone as has, has yeah. been brought up. And one of the things that I, I talked about as an example in this writing group that I, I would use here as well as an example is, this character, Prince Gustav, would be like if um, uh, the Jesus character from Big Lebowski showed up in No Country for Old Men. They're both Coen Brothers films. Yeah. And they both have their quirks. Yeah. But they don't always go together. It's just like it's heightened just past, not even just, it like totally breaks the ceiling. Yeah. past believability into this like cartoonish nature but yeah. in the big lebowski jesus makes fits yeah. like jesus is amazing in, in yeah. that in that film yeah the, the the only thing prince gustav does that that lends credibility to the genre that they're doing this isn't unheard of to have like a more goofy or side character that plays an important part in a musical especially when it comes to a love triangle like and I, heck, we could even take this to screwball comedy level. Like, you don't really need um, Ralph Bellamy in The Awful Truth because he becomes he he becomes non-essential by the end of The Awful Truth. But he's fun to have around, right? That that's similar logic in this respect, and it adds some sort of stake to Countess the Countess in terms of like this is why she's doing what she's doing, but it doesn't execute itself well by any stretch um no. it's and this is a musical that we should point out is like a hundred uh, is an hour and 16 minutes so this is not a long movie so no. there's there's not enough time to establish what gustav and the countess's marital issues are and 
more to the point, like why, why would he at the end of the movie suddenly give a shit? <laughs> Cause he seems to not really give a shit up until the very end. Well, I think um, it's, yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, there's, there's something there about the, the, the duels for her honor in her, in his dreams only. Yeah. And that it, you see that it's actually a reflection on his view of his own masculinity. Yeah. Um, and that it has nothing to do with his wife's honor. It all has to do with the fact that he doesn't want to be a cuckold. Yeah. Um, um, and the so, property thing again. Right. Exactly. Um, is, yeah. What do you say about me? And the fact of the matter is that she does not find him attractive and she's not interested in him. Um, but is interested in somebody else. And that's, yeah. that is the slight. It's not the other person, um, you know, putting their hand on his rhubarb as it were. Um, it's, it's actually about being, um, not wanted. Yeah. 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 He, it's, it's he, the vulnerable masculinity or fragile masculinity rather. Yeah. And it, and it goes into so much that the, we, we're, I talked earlier about my favorite coupling in the movie. Uh, one of the maids oh, yes. and one of the butlers have the best relationship in this entire movie that I want that. That's what I want the movie to be. Um, but they have a conversation as, as the countess goes off to write the verses to the blue Danube and they're blue, blue, blue Danube, Danube, like that, that whole thing. They're trying to uh, come up with like what you would call the Danube. And they're going like, what is the color of a Danube? It's Brown. As they're the, the husband and the wife are having this conversation, and the intermediaries are a maid and a butler who are passionately making love and communicating back and forth between the husband and the wife. It's the cutest. Uh, it's the thirties. It's the cutesy equivalent of the. Well, you can tell Mister Burns there that uh, I will not, you know, do the laundry. Oh yeah, well you can tell Miss Allen that I won't stop smoking in the house. You know that that whole comic bit that's so wonderful the difference is is that i'm seeing two people that i'd rather see in a movie and mm -hmm. i'd love hitchcock to do it <laughs> why not um but so yeah that's how the the verses start forming and then she and shawnee start rehearsing um and we get an instance of hitchcock for the first time really because this is a sound this is a new sound era really starting to work with music and how it works to imagery. Now it's not to describe it for the audience. This is not, I'm not talking about like an elaborate musical number and there's no choreography by Busby Berkeley happening around the place. It's really a revolve. It's a rotating shot around a piano and through the imagery is communicating the desires and wants of the characters in that scene in the p near the piano rehearsing and then cutting suddenly to Rezzy's character in a cut that I at first thought was abrupt when I first saw this movie and then I would rewind it and go, no, this is what the communication tool is. So he's already learning how music can be used, not just in the musical format, but also what can he do to communicate things with music down the line? Obviously, when we get to a film like Shadow of a Doubt, a waltz is a very important thing in Shadow of a Doubt. Um, as we uh, talk about like music in Hitchcock's films and how it relates to terror, Bernard Herrmann would be the definition of communicating the terror with the music. Not necessarily to um, cue the audience, but to enhance the audience's terror. 
Um, and these are this is all starting from a fluffy light musical. This isn't coming from uh, you know him doing a horror movie and then just saying, "What if I put something scary like a like a like a creepy Victrola song?" You know, this is this is where he learns those tools. Yeah. Um, he says in an interview that, and I I loved how the he expressed this. Waltzes from Vienna gave me many opportunities for working out ideas in relation to film and music. Naturally, every cut in the film was worked out on the script before shooting began. But more than that, the musical cuts were worked out too. And that's actually very evident when you watch anything musical happening in this movie. The, the yeah, big... the, the editing around the orchestra is is really, at the end of the day, it's not dissimilar to some of the cutting and the rhythm in um, Whiplash. Yep. Yep, I agree. Absolutely. There's it, drama in it. It's, it, is, it is very well done. Yeah, and, it's commu- and it communicates by, by the end of that picture the entire conflict that Strauss has had with his father and how he's letting all that energy out and that assurance that he's able to get from his own success as a result of going out and doing it. I mean, we're jumping a little ahead there, but you know, we're cause basically between now and here, the biggest thing that happens is Strauss goes to the bakery, uh, that Resi, um, that Resi's father operates. And that's when he starts getting more ideas for the Danube. What's interesting is that this doesn't have music in it really so much as it just has sound cues that will then become parts of the blue Danube. And it, a lot of it has to do with pastries being struck down at a specific tempo. <laughs> um, and he suddenly gets the idea of like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a fascinating sequence. Um, and it's, it is like, there is really, there is some very subtle sound mixing going on because yeah. there are hints of the actual waltz yep. being played at very low volume in sequence with these things that are going on in the bakery as he's getting this tour. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is going to sound like I'm being condescending. I'm not, but it's like, it's, it's kind of a cute sequence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and, and, and full disclosure, if you watch this movie and you're, and you're, and you're wondering like, why is it like so cliched and over the top? It's just like, well, that's just cause it's what it is. There's nothing like there. The things that we're finding that are positive about it are more in technique and less in story. Like this story does nothing to advance its genre, let alone Hitchcock's career whatsoever. The things... No, it's yeah, it's a it's a simple story, simply told, and and yeah. and I think that, um, you know, as far as the comedy goes, again, the 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 screenplay is relatively well done especially the comedy and the character quips yeah you know um it's it's not it's not much of a step away from the wonderful banter and like north by northwest and stuff that we'll see much later on exactly um and that sort of like romantic banter and and back and forth and um very smart alecky sort of stuff what is so interesting to me though is watching and i don't know if this is um purely like having only a British mentality and trying to apply this vaudevillian or like American silent film, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin esque um, physical comedy 
to what's going on. And it's just like it, it again, except for the pipe smoke coming out of the window, it never works. And every time it happens, I just like rolled my eyes and let out a huge sign. I was like, can we get on with the rest of this, please? Because like this is not working. And it's inherent in most comedies of the era, because um, especially in this transition period, like th- th- there is an obvious, you know, there's a there's a there's a um, a jerk reaction that you have of like comedy. Well, let's make something physical. One, because we're still transitioning from silence to sound, but also it's something that's proven um, for that era. So it's something that could physically feasibly work. Does it work in this story? No, not not even no. like the banter yeah. that Revel and Hitch are putting together works ten times better than any pratfall that they have to stick in there. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I by the time we it, the bakery has is is relatively subtle compared to the things that are wrapped around it. Like it's a pretty standard like guy goes to an uh, an office job that he doesn't want to go to and finds humorous things in it. Um, yeah, it's well, it's it's, um you know, the, the, the bakery sequence is kind of reminds me of um the musical composing scene in like August rush where yeah. he's, he's hearing the sounds around the city and being inspired by it and, and just kind of being fueled with this, um, artistic, uh, inspiration. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the difference between the physical comedy of say the fire brigade and what is going on at the bakery is that what's going on at the bakery is storytelling. Yeah. We're visually and, 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 um, orally telling the story and experiencing the creation of this masterpiece. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, it's very fun. It's interesting. And like I said, it's cute because it's sort of the way that it, it, it comes about. Yeah. Um, and, and that's different than going for a laugh and going for the pratfall. Yeah. And in addition, it, it, with the characterization of Strauss, albeit with the archetypes that we have been discussing, he is able to communicate his hesitation with his relationship with Rezzy and what it means through this sequence of being inspired in this bakery. So he's able to communicate to the audience without, you know, saying out loud, I want to be an artist, not a baker, even though he does say that (laughs) out loud, at least once in this movie, that's the scene where he's just like, no, your, your tour of this bakery does not matter, but what is happening is inspiring me to do the other thing that I'd like to do. So in a sense, like it it is, it's not only a funny scene, but it also, it, and it tells the story and it advances it further along. It creates right. a further dilemma for him as we get into the moments when there's a conflict that arises post this between Rezzy and the Countess because of who it's dedicated to. Yeah. Um, but it, the, I think that to just just real quick before we continue with the plot to speak to what you're you're speaking of and to give credit where where credit is due, um, not only the the writing of johann strauss jr um yeah. minus the property line um <laughs> but definitely in the in the performance is at no point do you not root for this guy yeah um like you he it's a really wonderful manifestation of it is possible to be in love with two things at the same time yeah and and there's a lot of tension and suspense and drama in there because one of the things that he loves will take him away from the other thing that he loves. Mm -hmm. 
And the only way that he can have the other thing that he loves is to give up the other thing that he loves. Yeah. And, and so, and the bakery you is the culmination of this because it is all of this tension over the bakery is if you pursue music, then you are therefore turning your back on the bakery and therefore turning your back on your love. But if you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to pursue my, my love, then that means that I have to accept the bakery, which means that I cannot make music and do what I love. And, and so the drama and the conflict in that is really wonderfully portrayed. And so, again, even though I don't think like Rezzy is, is written particularly well and, and, um, and the countess has her own issues and isn't someone that we want to see succeed with the love of Johann Strauss Jr. Anyway, um, you never don't want Johann Strauss to get both. Yeah. You want him to find some way to get both because you, you desire that for him. Yeah. This is a, this is a film that it, despite the, the labeling, we have it as a misfire or, um, or, or, or an early attempt that brings ideas down the line into a more sophisticated manifestation this film's entirely watchable in the respect of just it. You can watch these characters and get on their, get on their different sides and you can root for Johan and you can have a sense of fun throughout it and enjoy the story you're watching. It's not like the film we were just discussing before this, where you can't follow a damn thing more. Yeah, no, I, I, I will without any hesitation say that if, if it were not Hitchcock and I was not going to be recording this podcast, I would have turned off number 17. Yeah, absolutely. I would just, I would have been like, I, I don't know what's going on and I don't care. Yeah. So I'm done. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to push myself through this. Yeah. Um, and then that well, is not the case with waltzes from Vienna. Yeah, no, even if it's, even if Hitchcock wasn't the person behind this, if they were telling this same story, let's say Alma Revel and Guy Bolton are just doing the script. You know, Alma Revel didn't just work strictly with Hitch in the early years. She worked all over the gamut, right? So say she's so say she's tasked to write this script with Bolton, and she's still writing it. If this is the script that comes out and is just directed by another person, regardless of um, camera work or editing style, it's still an interesting story that you'd want to watch, regardless mm-hmm. of you know the uh, class levels that we deal with, and obviously we addressed up front, which is just like who cares about these affluent people but they you don't i don't feel like i watch that film and ever say to myself like who cares if he writes the blue danube i don't give a shit i'm like no i do i, I do, do care, care. About that. I, yeah. and maybe that speaks to the artist in me or the artist in you where it's just like man we we want to see him chase his dreams why the fuck not <laughs> like mm-hmm. um so but they but we get that love triangle that coming to a head that decision then has to be made and it's tricky, uh, which is interesting because it's it's a suspense that we talked about in the Mr. and Mrs. Smith discussion where the tension and the suspense revolves around human relationships and less on uh, anything that's above the average human circumstance. Um, and in this case, it is like, OK, well, clearly I'm going to give it up to be with you, Rezzy. So he becomes a baker. <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, the countess is working behind the scenes to essentially ensure that he does become a success by orchestrating Mm -hmm. a plan to get the Blue Danube played um, at a concert that Johann's father is supposed to be leading the orchestra in. 
And so um, as the plot progresses along, um, he gets a, a, a letter from the countess to meet up with her uh, at the at this festival where the band is going to perform and Johann's father will be uh, leading the orchestra there. And he has a scene in the bakery where he says, like, I've, I've given up everything for you. And but I don't want to have my freedom taken away. Like he doesn't want to be like tied down to this one specific thing just because he made the ultimate sacrifice. It doesn't mean he gives up everything. Yeah, because she makes the ultimatum of like, don't you can't even go to this thing. Yeah, exactly. Not even with any intention to play music or or um, to perform the waltz. Yeah, it's just you can't go. Yeah, not even as a baker because her father's catering this affair. <laughs> right. Um, and. He, but he makes the decision to go. Um, meanwhile, behind the scenes, um, the Countess's connection um, delays Johann Sr. from attending the concert by saying, you're going to be getting, given an honor. <laughs> um, just doing like, oh, yeah, you're going to get a medal, a shiny medal, like that equivalent conversation, and it delays him. And I, I love this trick. Because it's something that could only work in 19th century Vienna. In order to tell him, <laughs> oh, you've got plenty of time, he rewinds his watch. Now, Marshall, I think the sun and the way it operates in our solar system and the way it revolves, uh, or the way we revolve around it, I don't think... I don't know if that logically works, but I'm glad it does for the sake of movie magic. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just going to go out. If this ends up being true, I'm going to just be very angry. But, <laughs> like, in order to accomplish something like that now, you would need a Mission Impossible-esque feat where they go in and hack the atomic clock that everyone's <laughs> phones are at automatically attached to because yep. they need to buy 40 minutes so that this dude can jump in someone else's place and, and uh, conduct the orchestra yep. uh, for the waltz that he composed it. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, you're right. It's something that cannot happen uh, in the, in the modern era without again, some sort of gigantic oceans, 19 heist. <laughs> you're going to need 11 guys. <laughs> like, there's, <laughs> there's there's this it's it's a it was just a moment that stood out of just like you can't do that at all anymore. There's no friggin way that happens. Um, but it does happen here. And um, uh, the countess says that uh, it's been arranged that your father will let you lead this number uh, with the orchestra. Clearly a trick. Um, uh, Ressi sees that he's getting up to conduct. And but before that is is the, oh, the my moment of of tension. Oh yes, yes, yes everyone yes. on the table starts pounding yeah. on the table and going Strauss, 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 Strauss. Strauss. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, is he gonna is he, is gonna, he gonna get to do this? And yeah. it was like, I knew what it meant because Rezzy was right there watching him. And meanwhile, yeah, it was just like all of the tension and all of the narrative. Um, everything was directed to this one scene and everything was coming to a head at the exact same time in this really masterful way. So it's like, even though I do not care about these characters or the culmination of any of the relationships, like ach achieving any sort of success. Yeah. What the plot has told me is important in this moment has all is all coming to this single, single moment. 
Yeah. And I'm actually sitting like I'm on the edge of my seat about it. And it was wonderful. Yeah. And, and it, and it's and that tension when it is finally released with the blue Danube still manages to add its own suspense um, in the respect of just how he's constructing from frame by shot composition, the different angles of this performance going on. Right. It is, it's not so much Hitchcockian. It's just smart filmmaking. Um, And it's smart editing early on in an era where you're being able to communicate with sound and you have these shots and you obviously have a piece of music that you can lay in on that track easier than a dialogue scene. And it was one of those moments where I, when I was watching it again last night, I was like, man, like this is, this is how you make an orchestra movie. This is like, this is how you edit it and you construct it. You, we, we need to see that full spectrum. Something that I find even more interesting is that he spends the first portion of that on the audience and their mm-hmm. reactions. And, so he's and not lack even, of reaction at yeah, the beginning. Exactly. Which is and, really wonderful. And typically when we do a scene like this, we usually start on the band, we stake on that band, and then lead into the audience. I like how it's flipped here. Because then as it finally gets to the end of it, we're behind the orchestra looking at Johan. Yes. And it's, it's and, and even once you cut to the audience, you would do one, you know, maybe maybe a wide shot or maybe cut into, you know, a, a medium with a group of people, you know, a handful of people. And then you would either, you know, boom down or cut to someone's foot immediately start tapping. Yeah. And that's not what he does. He holds with just this audience just staring and staring and staring. Yeah. And then people just barely start to sway yep. and move. And it's this wonderful, like he doesn't give it to you right away. He doesn't say, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Well, we also, Marshall, we British don't tap our feet. <laughs> Fun <laughs> fact, we don't do it. <laughs> um, but you're right. No, he, he allows that to build and it grows so much so that the music works in tandem with the suspense so that when the music ends, we have... Not to put the sexual allegory on it, but we climax, and, you know. Um, yeah, and it's, it's uh, a crescendo. It, yeah, exactly. Right we as are, Dad walks in. Yeah, just, just, just how. Yeah, just yeah, to it ruins everything. The much like the allegory that I made regarding <laughs> to sex. Um, no, um, but so, um, yeah. So th- this it culminates as a big success. Applause are had, and Johann's father is. It's hard to tell off of Edmund Gwen until you know the ending of the movie. But it looks like he, he literally looks like he has just been told that his, uh, that, that his wife is leaving him or like that he's this, the ultimate cuck in the world or something. Cause the anger yeah. on Edmund Gwen's face. Yeah. It feels like he just walked in on his son. Yeah. Having, <laughs> yeah. Like it's, <laughs> to continue it's the metaphor again, that boiling, that seething look, the only way it looks even more obvious is if his face turns into a tea kettle that's boiling like in a cartoon. Um, And he has it out with, (laughs) with his son. Um, And we should say also amidst all this, um, Leonard, the, (laughs) our Leopold's Leopold, our, our Baker rival has had a fun little um, comic side quest and Rezzy tells him, like, don't worry, you'll meet somebody as wonderful as me. <laughs> and, like, 
So like, and he, he comes becomes important because he leads them to the climax of the or the 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 finale of the movie, which is, um, the Countess and Johann Strauss meeting up. Prior to that, Johann, you know, now discovering that his father knew nothing about this performance, um, uh, is um is is taken aback and he's retreating rather than you know, falling in line with the adulation that he's receiving and runs off. The countess follows him. Meanwhile, Prince Gustav enters the festival and, uh, proceeds to essentially goof about until the father just lets it loose. Like, yeah, your, your wife and my son have just run off together because they've been doing Hank musical hanky panky around your back. So, um, with the climax, a different type of music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, making different beautiful music together, and it ends with the you know Ressi then rushing off also to join this actual triangle about to unfold. It eventually becomes a square because Gustav runs in to discover them talking, and they duke it out. But prior to that, the conversation that ultimately becomes character defining about, you know, how famous he's going to be. This is the only on the nose moment that I had a bit of an eye roll toward. And it's not because of antiquity or anything. I don't like this in a lot of films where um, someone of historical note, someone tells them you're going to be great or like you're, you're, the world will know your name. My my least favorite part of Straight Out of Compton is when Ice uh, when Ice Cube's son playing Ice Cube is writing the final words of the script for Friday, so <laughs> that that will give you an idea of where my eye roll was coming from. Having said that, though, it does wrap up his character and like the decisions he's going to have to make. Him and Gustav duke it out. Ressi and him embrace, and that basically ends his arc. Is just that he's going to be able to have it both now because Ressi finally understands. Well, Ressi saves his life yeah. because uh, Gustav shows up and the Countess has hidden herself in the bathroom. Yeah. An- another hiding of a bathroom. Yeah, uh, and, and Gustav, finally not aloof, is about to kill him. <laughs> yeah, so they, they duke it out because he thinks that he thinks correctly that the Countess is in the bathroom. But Rezzy has gone up uh, some back window yeah. and has swapped places with the Countess so that she opens the door revealing, oh, it's not your wife in here and you're not being cuckolded. And saving uh, the young Strauss's life. And then the Countess comes up the stairs and is like, oh, husband, you beat me. Wow, you're fast. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Um, Thus giving up her her aspirations for some young buck lover. (laughs) Um, Ouch. And and the, 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 the note that the film ends on, like... Again, for all of its faults and for all of the eye-rolling and the heavy sighs and the I don't care about any of this, that last scene, like, Zach, I got choked up. Yeah. It was so, like, I'm getting choked up now just thinking about it. Like, yep. it's it's really, really well done. It's Should masterful. we tell them the scene? Because it's a good scene. Yeah, go for it. So the scene then cuts to uh, the empty festival and the... Uh, the elder Strauss is walking around alone, an embittered old man filled with filled with what I'm assuming is shame about what because of what's to come. 
And a little girl goes up to her and goes up to him and says, "May I have your autograph, Mr. Strauss?" Takes the book and signs it, and then he gives it back to her. And then he says, "Hold on, little girl." Gets it back, and he adds an addendum, which is Johann Strauss, Senior. Closes the book, hands it to the girl. We fade out, and it's beautiful. Without it's so beautiful, with literally two lines of dialogue all told. Between just the little girl and him. Mm-hmm. And nothing but imagery. We get the father's realization within the span of what? Less than a minute or maybe at a minute? I would say less than a minute. And that's communicating an entire character change with virtually no dialogue. That is pure cinema at its core. It doesn't require you to be visually spectacular with your with whether it's with lighting or cinematography. You can communicate intimate emotions between actors with virtually no dialogue and communicate that character change like all in the span of 30 seconds. Yeah, is that there's this, um, which again, you know, I think that, that the success of this scene speaks to the faults of the film. Yeah. Is that what this movie is actually about is um, uh, a young man wanting to at the end of the day fulfill his destiny yep but along that's that's what he must do but what he wants to do is earn the respect and and blessing and love of his father yep and so by the end of the film through his own efforts and through these you know crazy machinations and crossings and double crossings of of people around him he's able to achieve what he must do yep and completely unbeknownst to him he's never in the same room i don't think this is ever going to be acknowledged between them but he actually ends up accomplishing what he wants and there's something that's really sort of again like speaking to the the tragedy of fragile masculinity that's really a tr- that's that's really touching about that and is sad and is this very like melancholy moment even yeah. though it's a success it's it's an achievement but you know that it's between these two people who are never going to be able to be comfortable in the same room around each other. And it's just this really poignant, sad moment. It's just, it's really beautiful. And it's a baton, it's a a torch passing that I think uh, manages to, I like how it communicates a much more positive message than I was expecting when I first saw the film, let alone, Mm -hmm. let alone from a musical that, is not it's weird like this is a musical it's not uh, a, a, a musical with musical numbers it's a movie about music in a, yeah. it, to a degree and and the the egos that can come within that and i didn't i didn't get teary-eyed during it but what i loved was the profound look on edmund gwen's face after he hands the book back for the last time it's a it's a it's a look that he gives that I think only only actors of a certain age are allowed to give. Nobody below 50 can give that look and pull it off convincingly. No, it can't be done. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it comes from a recognition of mortality, Yeah, ultimately. And I, as, as someone who is plagued by the idea of, of the two deaths and very strongly believes in that, I think that there's, maybe that's, you know, part of why it was so moving to me is, is it, is the scene where um, the father is not, he's not rolling over. 
right? He's not saying I'm going to stop composing music and screw you, but he's sort of stepping aside and saying, you know, like there's room for two of us and someday you're going to sign your name in this book as well. Yeah. And it's going to be important that they be differentiate, you know, you can differentiate between them. Um, and, and that I, you being great doesn't do anything to erase my legacy. Yeah. That we can both be great. Um, and, and I really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's something that, that, that understanding from not just an intellectual standpoint, but for an actual emotional standpoint is only possible from people who have lived longer than other people who can only intellectualize that idea. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, and I think that, that it ultimately what it, and it also like, it's interesting with the, with the way it addresses masculine, fragile masculinity in that respect is, it's it's fascinating to see how in these older films there are moments with those uh, with those things addressed. It's but unlike what we can do today, they're they're working slyly within a code of it's not even a censor code. It's a it's a code of just what the what the uh, societal order is of that point in time and where certain people are on this you know, imaginary chain or like a tier system that doesn't really exist. It never existed, but it was important to the society and yet we're able to address them in tiny moments. And then that's why these films are able to last for decades beyond their release. And their initial reception is that in within even the corniest black and white movie, there's an addressment of something that we can latch onto in a current era because it's either a human issue or it's an issue that we're not allowed to talk about right now, but we're going to hint at it. And then you as a viewer can decipher it down the line, whether intentional or not. And this is an example of something that is able to be addressed down the line with somebody as intelligent as you. Um, Well, it's, and thank you. I will accept the compliment. Um, (laughs) You may be wildly off base, but I'll accept it. But the, the, the thing about that for me that I think that, and especially, and I'm sorry if I'm being super in my head, I am in the middle of like co-writing a film right now. So yeah. it's, it's, I'm, I'm being very heady about this sort of stuff in films is that I'm, I'm not even going to go so far as to say anyone involved, whether it's with the, um, with the operette or with the screenplay, even up to Hitchcock himself could actually articulate the sort of things that I just talked about that happened in that scene. But what I do think happened is they were diligent about saying this needs to be based in truth. Yeah. And we're not going to end this the way that a musical would end with some amazing celebration and elder Strauss, like extending his elbow to walk Rezzy down the, you know, um, down the aisle to the blue Danube. It's just like, it's not, that would be um, um, a, a contrivance. Yeah. And it's, it wouldn't be based in that. It would be based on, oh, well, like, we need to make everyone feel happy and everything like that. But it's saying, who is this character and what does this sort of um, acceptance and, um, yeah, what does this sort of, like, acceptance and embrace look like? Yeah. It would, this guy would never say congratulations to his son. He would never wrap his arms around his son. But what he would do is add a postscript to his name 
to leave to to acknowledge the idea that he is now no longer the only Johann Strauss. And that's why I and, say that and that's why I say it's a movie about it's a musical because it's a movie about music and that addressment is much more important sorry Resi than the love story. Because the music itself has been permeating the film. This is an example of like if we're going to get specific with Hitchcock he he does the right thing, in my opinion, by stripping it of any ancillary numbers that are meant to communicate character action and motivation, which is your typical musical trope. And, and it's done to mostly good success when you make a good musical film, right? In right. this one, it's like, well, no, the piece of music is the Blue Danube. This is what we're centering it around. We're not going to have um, uh, we're not going to have a uh, a Gilbert and Sullivan affair where everybody's dancing around this is focused on a piece of music it is a musical mm -hmm. um and so that addressment at the end that being the final moment and not a wedding where everybody's all happy is much more important and a good way to end it you know hitchcock told Truffaut about this film this is the lowest ebb of my career and yet even with the lowest ebb of his career he still has the uh the knowledge and the truth within his filmmaking to end it on a proper note and to take it seriously, regardless of if it's an assignment or not for him. Right. right. And that's what I find fascinating about as we move into our final film. When we talk about waltzes with, from Vienna, you know, it's a film that you're not going to know right away that it's Hitchcock. If you look in the visual scheme and really pay attention, you'll see different things that he's doing, whether it's through editing or shot composition. But this is this is uh, one of the last points, the second to last point, I would even say, where he's able to, to keep experimenting with stuff before he goes into the perfection of all these elements. And hmm. I'm happy that, I, you know, it's not my favorite of the three we're going to be discussing, but it's obviously my second favorite because <laughs> there's only other, one other option. But it's a film that I think, like, it, it, I think Hitchcock, with all due respect to the Master of Suspense, I feel like he should give himself a little more credit. Because I think that he did a fine job with it, given what he had to work with. Um, and the result that comes out is more than sufficient. Um, now, as far as it being a Hitchcock film, obviously it's not. Um, yeah. So, yeah, essentially, um, this uh, as we're leaving Waltz's from Vienna, you know, the... Uh, Hitchcock doesn't regard this with anything high, although it should be pointed out that there are a lot of people who feel like us that there are ways to address this, not just to the future things that Hitchcock does, but also giving it a little more credit than 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 just relegating it off to the dustbin of history. Yeah, um, there are pieces of it that are, are really worth um, looking at. I think that, you know, in specific, I've talked about the 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 physical comedy is horrible, but the script is really great. Um, um, we've talked about the highlights between the um, the maid and the butler, um, that that sort of stuff. Um, there are some really great transitions from not only from scene to scene, but also you know you touched on um, when Strauss is first with the um, countess, and we're cutting back and forth to Resi to be like this is this is still a thing that exists. Yeah. Um, or is a thing that is being put into jeopardy. And we understand that just through the use of montage and the cut, um, which is, which is really masterful. And of course, you know, we, we talked about the end and I think that, um, ultimately, 
Um, see, I, I, I did not, when I was watching these films, I did not look at the years that they, like when, when they were made. Yeah. And so I accidentally watched them in reverse chronological order. <laughs> um, but this was the first movie of in, in watching these three, when I made the note of like, this is why, again, why it's so important for creatives to be creating as much as they can and to be practicing is because you can really see him starting to like, he's, he's built up a muscle that he doesn't quite know how to use yet in terms of executing some of these things in film. That's, that's really kind of neat to be like, Oh, like this one piece worked and yeah. it didn't connect to anything else. You didn't know how to like follow through or how to set it up, but this piece really worked really well or this piece worked really well. Exactly. Um, and it's, 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 it's fascinating to watch and it, but it's a good inspiration and sort of life lesson, I think. Yeah. And this comes out in 1934, um, talking release dates and stuff, such the same year. One of the classics, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934, is released. So in between, he's already making a film that will become a masterpiece to the, to the, to the all-time. And the following year, he makes the, 30, the 39 Steps in 1935, which is arguably one of the most popular of his British Gamo films. And then in the next year, he makes a film called Secret Agent, uh, and this is going to be our third and final film to discuss today um, from 1936. This is based off of a story by W. Somerset Maugham um, and a play by Campbell Dixon. Um, and uh, the two stories that it's kind of loosely um, uh, based on are in a book by Somerset Maugham called Ashenden or the British Agent. Um, the film stars Madeline Carroll, Peter Laurie, John Gielgud, and Robert Young and Michael Redgrave, who would be a prominent part of the lady vanishes makes an, un a, a brief appearance in the film. Um, and so with secret agent, we deal with a very interesting situation in Hitchcock's, um, uh, oeuvre to my mind. One of these big parts of it is that if this is the, this is in between the 39 steps and sabotage. And we've talked about, um, uh, sabotage before, um, which was a box office failure, and part of what Hitchcock attributes to it is the bomb, uh, the bomb going off and killing the kid, and he goes, "No, no, the child, no." Um, and that, but what's interesting is that there's a lot of things where I'm glad the way it plays out here because it allows sabotage to play out the way it does. Because then he learns a valuable lesson in that in sabotage about where to draw that line on suspense and just straight out, you know, uh, masochism uh, as he mm -hmm. as he was ultimately thinking. Obviously, I have my opinion on sabotage and it being just a fine moment in that movie in terms of it propelling the plot forward with secret agent. We see the continuation of stuff that happens in things like the 39 steps. We're talking espionage here. We're talking uh, specifically world war one espionage. So it's not even alluding to things, uh, to, for world war two in a indirect way. It's, it's as close an allegory as you're going to get for impending war. What's interesting is that it plays out like an anti-war movie, uh, specifically, 
with our John, our, our hero played by John Gilgood and Madeline Carroll. Um, and the, yes. the, yeah, I, w- I just wanted to give a shout out to John Gilgood cause he was in Caligula. And so yeah. he's amazing <laughs> for having been in Caligula. So it, he gets it def- all my props. Yeah. And John Gilgood also an Oscar winner for Arthur. So <laughs> he's known yes. for being a British agent, a butler in a Dudley Moore movie and a sex movie. <laughs> um, although Caligula obviously has a lot more going on in it. <laughs> like it's not, it's yeah, not just the thing. Yeah. There, the there are things that are power. Pr- That's it right yeah. there. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it, it, it What's interesting is because of the way it plays out, it it's almost like it feels like this is Hitchcock, uh, like a, a a middle not middling but just like it's fine, it's aggressively fine. It's my favorite of the three we're discussing because of just the tiny isolated elements that are in it that I know get perfected down the line, and I'm just kind of able to ride its wavelength. Um, yeah. So let me let me ask you something. As someone who I really tried to fit this in before uh, coming on, I just couldn't couldn't quite accomplish that. Um, I have not seen the Thirty Nine Steps, but in all of the research that I have done into Secret Agent, it seems like Hitchcock was really trying to get lightning to strike in a bottle twice. Yeah, very um, much. Even so, so far as. Um, the lead from 39 steps, Robert, uh, Donut, Is that how you pronounce it? Robert Donat. He wanted him for it. <laughs> yeah. He wanted him for it, but he got ill. And so he had to pull out of the project. Yeah. Um, and, and John and, Gilgood is replacement. And yes, you know, we just gave praise to John Gilgood, but we're going to, um, we're going to be honest here on the Shamley silhouette. And the honesty is this, that John Gilgood is not interested in anything. <laughs> he's not, no. a, he's not, very um he you know what he don't he you know what he's doing he's doing exactly what people accuse John Gavin of doing in psycho <laughs> where he's just a stick that's there to propel the plot along in its own way well i think that it's and it's it's very much it's written that way i mean he's for yeah. lack of a better term too british <laughs> um he's yep. he's only mildly entertained that his death has been faked by his government. Yeah. So that he can go do uh, the plot of this film. Yeah. And he just sort of like everything is approached in the script and also in the performance in this sort of like, well, here's what I'm up against. So I suppose that this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Is, it's it's <laughs> I... just sort of this like kind of, kind of bored, kind of amused, I guess I don't have anything better to do, so whatever, you know, uh, approach that is, you know, to Hitchcock's um, confession, uh, own own admittance of it, is really hard to have a protagonist who doesn't particularly give a crap about pushing the plot along. Yeah, exactly. And it, and that, and it led to frustration with him. Um, but regardless of, to, to me, regardless of what, with regardless of that little interference and annoyance, that's not the only thing that's wrong with this film. And I think that the, the bigger issue at hand is that the suspense is not laid out in the same way that we have with the 39 steps or the man who knew too much. 
Um, and I'm not even talking about laying the bomb, bomb under the table. It's just that it seems like we're being led on uh, a, a few too many red herring uh, or, or there's a red herring in this movie that lasts longer than I feel like it should, even though it brings up a very great visual sequence um, in the movie. Um, and I guess it would be a good time to jump into the plot of the film. Uh, and Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Were you going to say something? <laughs> um, no, no. I just, um, I mean, yeah, I think that like it's, I, no, I was, I was, yeah, being facetious in my side just yeah, to kind like, of being okay. like, in in a movie with a reluctant protagonist, it's yeah but, the the plot becomes very plotting. But but here's here's the thing: we don't we're not alone with just John Gilgood. We have four other charismatic people to guide him. <laughs> very charismatic. Um. Uh, so, but the story starts off with, um, uh. Uh, we are we are clearly seeing that a spy plot is afoot with a with with a body that has been removed from, or is de- has a death has been faked, and that a funeral arrangement has been set up to establish this death, um, with a wonderful one armed man smoking a cigarette scene and him trying to lift a casket up, um, and then we get some imagery of World War One and what's going on with it, um, flashes of newspapers and such, and we're led into the war offices where. Um, our um, a novelist known as Edgar Brody, um, he returns home, but he's he discovers his own obituary. He goes into the war office, and um, he he's basically told, "You're going to be given the identity of Richard Ashenden, uh, and you will assist with tracking down and eliminating a person who is." Um, uh, He's basically trying to create further trouble in the Middle East, and he's a German agent who's working both sides. He is given a task to meet up with a uh, a, a contact um, through there, and his assistant in all this. And I want to be very careful about how I introduce Peter Laurie in this film. Um, returning to the Hitchcock fold for his second and only other appearance in Hitchcock's filmography which uh, to me is a dis, uh, a, dis, a travesty that he wasn't in more yes he's, so he's ca- I, I can help you with that he's called the general <laughs> but he's also known as well yes so R his uh uh ashenden's sort of controller says we call him the hairless mexican yeah oh why well chiefly because he's got a lot of curly hair and isn't a mexican you can call him the general he yeah. isn't a general but he'll appreciate the compliment yeah Exactly. And oh, and my favorite line, lady killer, eh? Not just with the ladies. Peter Lorre is everything, man. And not only ladies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This... And it's this wonderful, like my, again, a, a jaw dropping moment from a, a good place is like the, the, the needle that was thread with that double entendre of what you can get by is like, well, he's an assassin. So he's saying, no, he doesn't kill women. He he doesn't only kill women. He will also kill men. Is that what it means? Is it? Is it? (laughs) But the euphemism of like, you know, we're dealing with a bisexual character to be doing that in 1936. I was like that. And that is right after, by the way, he has chased a woman up the stairs. Yeah. Who is like, it's the pure Pepe Le Pew to the cat moment. (laughs) Um, is what this is. <laughs> Let's and be that's careful. Just like, how oh, we he's the... a real lady killer, huh? Yeah. Not only ladies. Yeah. 
Um, Which, by the way, the general and Pepe Le Pew do not really work well today, but... <laughs> new. New, they but, do not. But but regardless, this is a my favorite Peter Lorre performance in a Hitchcock movie for a very selfish reason. And it's because I really like when Peter Lorre gets to play a good guy. I love him as a villain, obviously. I mean, obviously, he chose that line down the middle in uh, Casablanca playing Ugati. But generally, he would play um, the heavy or a uh, sidekick or a villain chief among uh, his most famous roles. Um, I mean, like, the, uh, the biggest one is his debut, which is M by Fritz Lang where he plays a child killer, but he plays it obviously with the empathy that makes that film a masterpiece. Yeah. In this film, he's just a goofball. This whole movie. <laughs> he's masterful in it. I absolutely yeah. fell in love with him. I loved every single scene he was in. He was, um, um, although we've given his character introduction, but we actually haven't given his true name. It is uh, General Pompilio Montezuma de la Villa de Conda de la Rue. Yeah. Thank you for saying it because I wouldn't have been able to get through it without messing up some words. You, this, I practiced. This this character has every single name imaginable, and thankfully we give him we have the cipher of him as just the general because it just makes it so much easier. Obviously, yes. um, but Brody um, or Ashenden, as he's now referred to, gets his mission. Um, and he arrives at the Hotel Excelsior in uh, Switzerland. And I love the transition of going to the uh, Hotel Excelsior by having that close-up on the letters for that form Hotel Excelsior going backwards. Um, and it's a, a, a tr an attribute to Hitchcock that he does this not just before but down the line but using imagery to suggest tra transitions. Um, my favorite among them being how we are introduced to Santa Rosa in Shadow of a Doubt. Um, by just having Joseph Cotton saying Santa Rosa for the telegram, and then we are whisked away to Santa Rosa. Um, so he arrives at the hotel. He checks in and finds out that he has a wife registered <laughs> at the hotel already. Um, so, And this is a, a, an element of the plot he did not know was going to happen. Um, and he enters the hotel room and uh, to meet, essentially meet his wife, and there's another guest in the room, Robert Marvin, played by Robert Young. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and his wife is, uh, her character is Elsa Carrington, played by yeah. Madeline Carroll. Yes, exactly. And um, Robert uh, Maeve Marvin here is uh, an American uh, roustabout, um, or so, is, or is he? We'll find out. But um, he's clearly trying to get Elsa uh, to go to bed with him because it's... It's just a, a, a big old sea of hitting on uh, Madeline Carroll here throughout his entire performance. Yeah, yeah, and again, like I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form versed in in the history of British code, so I don't know where we are in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed in 1936. But I actually think that like the way that this is presented is they have already spent a night together. It, it 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 could be it definitely is implied that the, if not then they have at least fooled around at at a certain point. My within when within regards to censorship at this time, America is the one that is getting um uh very uh tight knit right with its um, approach to sex violence all the 
the whole gamut, right? We've talked about this in previous episodes, but British censorship is a little different primarily because British custom, it's a little bit more accepting towards sexuality, but violence is something it condemns. Gotcha. Yeah, so, no, that, that tracks. Because, yeah. I mean, because Ashenden comes in the room and we don't even see Elsa Carrington because she is undressed still getting ready. Yep, exactly. And Kid. he actually runs into Robert Marvin. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so it's definitely definitely implied that there's a lever to, level of comfortability <laughs> that uh, is not uh, – doesn't lend one to believe that um, there's a non – uh, uh, that the pursuit hasn't already kind of been fulfilled in some way, shape, or form there. Yeah, it's, it, it, what I find interesting about this particular introduction is how much it mirrors what we see previously in the 39 Steps with two people who aren't meant to, or, or, who aren't wouldn't be together under any circumstances are forced into this pairing. Um, and this is obviously something we see done to, I would think, better perfection for the British period in The Lady Vanishes because it turns it into a full-blown um, uh, A plot um, or B plot, I guess, where where it's essential to the emotional arc of the story. Um, as, the, um, as they get to know each other, um, the general um, is introduced to... Um, uh, not only re reconnects with Ashenden, but also finally he meets uh, Elsa, and he he goes on a tangent about how he doesn't get a girl, but the Ashenden does. Yes, yeah, he and, freaks out about it, and it's it's at you know it's at this you know it's maybe a good time to mention that uh, Peter Lorre is actually the one who sold Hitchcock's who who sold the Hitchcock the rights to this uh, to the stories. Yeah. Um, so this was a role that not only was he perfect for, but like clearly he was able to sink his teeth in. Yeah, and he's and he he's he's his characterization in this. It, it's this is going to sound like an insult, but believe me, it's not. He is the Costello to John Gilgood's Abbott, and they play off of each other in such a way that I can't help but be bemused anytime I see them both on screen, regardless of how stiff Gilgood is mm -hmm. because he's their banter back and forth is just, it's, it's a, it's a perfect setup for Peter Laurie to come out on top. And I'm always in favor of that. Yeah. Um, so as we find out, um, as we co as we go along, obviously he's um, they, they are um, to contact uh, they they're going to come to contact a double agent at a church, and um and the a, and the agent is supposed to be the church organist, but they find him dead as they are praying, in a scene that is very Hitchcockian, dealing with some macabre imagery within a church and, uh, contrasting the elements of guilt and um and suspicion within, within that setting. It just looks fantastic. It's beautifully shot. It's, Phenomenal sound design. Yep, and it's clearly storyboarded and executed according to specific composition and it's just fantastic to look at um they um uh they 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 through a button um they are able to determine who might be the one who executed this church organist and they go to the casino they meet elsa there and um uh the button is dropped into a gambling table um and uh a mountaineer um, Kapor, 
uh, played by Percy Marmont, uh, it uh, assumes that it's his button. So they assume that this is their uh, person they've been sent to eliminate. So they all meet up along with uh, Robert Marvin, uh, who is pretty much just butting in with everything. Um, or, or is he butting in? We'll find out. Um, but they all agree to go um, up on a mountaining, mountaining excursion um, with the intent is for the uh, the general's intent is to kill Kapor because he assumes he is the man. But Gilgood, in the rare moment of him actually doing anything or having any interest, has doubts about this person as we f- go through this scene in the Alps. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we get essentially is a red herring scene uh, or uh, moment in, t- uh, in the film that obviously doesn't lead to much other than the morality that we find ourselves in later on in the story with Madeline Carroll and John Gilgood's uh, feelings towards war and violence in general and murder. Um, but the scene itself is classic Hitchcock POV dealing with a sinister scenario and the suspense of there's nothing I can do to stop it. Um, when we have Gilgood looking through a telescope as uh, the general and Cape Horror have gone off alone to the mountain, we see that we know what the general is about to do. And all we can see is Gilgood hoping that it won't happen. Yeah, and the the de- the what what felt like a departure for me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the one of the things that makes the sequence really <sighs> watching it, it's a little, it's honestly a little jarring, but it ends up being very poignant and and particularly unique is that um, this entire sequence of uh, of Ashenden and the general, you know, going up this mountain with Kapor and then trying to decide, arguing about whether they should actually kill him or not, and then Ashenden leaving to leave the general to the dirty deed is all intercut with Elsa, with Kapor's wife and their dog back in some hotel room. Yeah. And there, I, I don't know that I have ever seen like this level of magical realism in a Hitchcock film before yeah. where as the suspense is building, as you know, that the general is, a, is going to kill Kapor. Yeah. We cut back and forth to the parlor as the dog is getting more and more frantic, trying scratching at the bottom of the store, trying to be let out ending in the culminating that in the death of Kapor, this dog just lets out this howl yeah. knowing that it's master died. And at the same time, the wife knows that the dog knows and Elsa knows that that's what's just happened. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that I've seen that that type of of magical realism in a Hitchcock film before communicated in that way. Watch uh, watch Shadow of a Doubt because it comes into play um, with Shadow of a Doubt. But I think it's also grounded much more in Shadow of a Doubt. This is straight up magical realism. In Shadow of a Doubt, it's grounded in a character's theory and how the world works and how coincidence plays into that favor. Hmm. Um, so it's more technically thought out than this. Gotcha. And it and with that magical realism also leads to Madeline Carroll's disillusionment with her whole mission. Um, and uh, as they um, as after Kapor's death, they meet up in what is assumedly to be a celebration that their mission is accomplished 
only to get a telegram via decoding that they got the wrong man. Yes. And, you know, obviously the general can't help but have a good laugh about it because he just finds it. Well, it's just another mess up in the line of duty, I suppose. And this leads to the only moments of interest with John Gilgood in terms of of him basically being like, look, I, I mean, they, they basically profess their love for each other. And within that also declare that they are no longer going to be a part of this fight. Right. And, and that in lies the issue of with all the coding of what is coming with the Nazis during World War Two that Hitchcock does in his British films. This one decidedly decides to be isolationist, which is fascinating because um, it doesn't keep consistent with the other films he would do where that coding of the messages of the call to war that is coming to Europe um, uh, and how they are so carefully laid out in the other films. The, the film before this, The 39 Steps, is very much uh, alluding to the threat of Nazi Germany and its impending doom. Uh, and in this film, as we see by the very end, the, the, the tone of it suggests that it should be an isolationist uh, result. So that's that's a pretty fascinating thing coming from a director who has essentially coded his films as such to be like, look, I know what's fucking coming. How do you not fucking see it? So, um, so within that, they agree to give up the whole business and uh, have Gilgood resign. And the general comes in and says, he, for first of all, he throws, he, he gives a great speech about giving up and what that actually means. And, 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 and the, the privilege of being in the position of being able to give up. Yep. And that, and that also is the, that's the coding that we find where Hitchcock is able to telegraph Hello, Hitler's coming. Hello. <laughs> like, you know, that that thing that you had to do because you couldn't address things directly because you didn't want to upset that stupid man in his mustache. So, you know, that Peter Lorre is the hero of this movie. It's it's not even a question. <laughs> like he's the real hero of the movie. Um, but I think that it's I mean, the, the, the movie is um, it's a half of a film Um the first half is brilliant. Um, and once the reveal that they got the wrong man happens, it, it really falls off very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of that is because I think that this film from a character standpoint is about disillusionment, about war and about um, death and, yeah. and death and war and how pointless it is. Um, and how perpetual it is. And, um, you know, I think that there's, there's a version of this movie that's very interesting where Elsa is the main character, because I think that she really goes through the, the main character arc of entering the whole scenario as essentially an adolescent. Yeah. She signs up to be a secret agent because she wants some excitement and she finds it so interesting. Yeah. And as soon as she knows that she has taken part in the killing of someone, she, like immediately starts suffering from PTS. Like yeah. she, she becomes, um, the PTSD. Yeah. 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 She, um, she really becomes very, um, despondent and despondent. She disassociates yeah. and is like, let's just get out of here. You know, like, I don't want to be involved in any of this. Um, yeah. and so, yeah. So I think that 
there is, you know, there's that sort of thing going on, but there's another half of the, of a movie that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, because the second half of the movie that happens while on a technical level looks exciting and has a lot of uh, sophistication of stuff we were talking about earlier in this episode. Story-wise, it's just kind of like it, it, it falls off. It 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 slowly tumbles off a cliff. It doesn't happen all at once. Um, the the he basically uh, the general convinces um, Ashenden to uh, come with him to follow up on a tip that he got uh, from a woman that he uh, romanced <laughs> um, in his bed um, about a, the, basically a chocolate factory that this woman's boyfriend works at is basically the German post office right. for, for German soldiers. Um, and so they, they go to investigate it. And the cross cut between this is that um, Elsa has just decided that he's not going to give up. I'm just going to leave without him. And um, within that, she reconnects with Marvin one last time, who gives him or gives him a, or gives her a, a, um, a, a framed picture of him with a mustache because because <laughs> it's a callback from earlier. And um, uh, he tells her where he's about to go, which is to Greece. And they uh, as we go back to the chocolate factory, cross cutting between all this. We get this big elaborate set piece, an action scene cross cutting between different pieces of footage of the machinery of a chocolate factory, the making of a chocolate factory. Like there's there's never been a chocolate factory more elaborate in cinema up until 1974. So the 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 action scene in itself is a sophistication of stuff we were seeing and stuff like number number 17 and even also um, stuff like the 39 steps where you're you're able to construct a massive action sequence out of this one place with this little material that you have the disposal of. Um, and it works as a scene um, and it utilizes a lot of loud overbearing uh, sound design in order to basically let the action play out rather than any dialogue that might happen in between. Yeah. There's, there's a, a, a lot of that, you know, kind of interesting, um, silent film tropes going on, but a fun, a fun use of sound, um, from a film perspective in that characters are constantly talking to each other, Yeah, but you can't hear them because of the noise. And yeah. so you own, you're left to only understand and follow what's going on through the visual storytelling, which is yeah. pretty fun. And they, and, and within this, they find out who, uh, via, uh, notice from intelligence, um, in a scene where R has his shirt off and is looking like a you know a fox of an old man, I guess he, <laughs> um, they reveal that they know who the uh, who our actual villain is, and it's Marvin. Whoa, twist! The charming Marvin. <laughs> who would have thought that Robert Young would be the villain of this movie? It's almost as if we couldn't trust the American in this movie. <laughs> the one person who has no discernible accent you know obviously like it's it's interesting how it's like because robert young when you see him in a british movie of this era when he's still working in hollywood it's like what's he, what's robert young doing here well he worked with hitchcock not unlike actors would want to work with him down the line but this is one who just came over the boat to do it yeah. so um so they go to the train station to intercept and he reconnects with elsa and 
he reveals to her what they know. And this is our first instance of a bomb under the table, really. We give Elsa the information that Marvin is our agent who's trying to cause chaos in the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. And so she's got she's going to go in now and essentially keep him there while they go to inter- well they before they can go to ke- to get him. But she doesn't want Ashenden to kill him. Yeah. So there but the problem with this bomb under the table is that it doesn't become one because it doesn't draw any suspense because Marvin already suspects the moment that she has entered his train uh, his train compartment that she knows who he is. Right. He's not fooled. So then a, an element like this that then gets carried into sabotage and then is perfected in other films, this is really its basic seed, which is just like, okay, one piece of one character knows a piece of information that the other doesn't, except the other character does because <laughs> he's one step ahead. So yeah. it, it's interesting to see how stuff like this then gets – uh, a physical manifestation in the next film and then becomes an idea in further films to follow. So it took two character setups and a physical realization to then create an idea of suspense that we now hold dear today. Starts mm-hmm. with those pieces. Um, and then basically we're led to another train climax, which he gets to perfect upon from number 17 because this train sequence looks way better doesn't so it so much miles 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 better yeah visually stunning we get some planes coming in and taking out the, the gun turrets on top of the train it looks it looks badass for a 30s film man let alone a film made at a period in Europe's history where they are basically about to enter war um it's it's pretty amazing what he was able to accomplish in this era from a visual mm-hmm. standpoint. And I think this stands above it. And what it leads to is a huge train crash. Um, prior to that, Elsa is once again saying, John Gilgood, don't kill people. <laughs> and it, it, it sucks. You know why it sucks, Marshall? Because mm-hmm. once the train crashes and everybody's all busted up, Robert Young's on his death keel, our dear friend, the general, walks up and gets a cigarette from Mr. Young. And Robert Young takes that time to grab a gun that he had conveniently placed in his coat pocket and shoot the general. And is he is he getting a cigarette from him or is he giving him a oh, cigarette? Oh, you know, he's li- he's uh, lighting the cigarette. Yeah, he's um, being polite. Yeah. And he gets and, killed for it. Yeah, and exactly. And then shoots. And Robert Young dies. And the general... Gets up there, calls out his name, and then falls in dramatic Hitchcock fashion. And it's the saddest part of the movie. Because if Elsa had just learned what had to happen because... it's it's I'm not advocating for violence, obviously. Murder is murder. But Peter Laurie didn't have to die <laughs> for your decisions. Um, and I, and again, I'm kind of being facetious about it, but we do get a really good death scene from, yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting how it, it's drawn out to that bitter end because it it, normally in a situation like that, you'd probably get the train crash 
And I'm wondering if it's because the general is the kind of character that he is, that he had to be the heroic sacrifice. It's just the way that character is presented. It almost seems like we needed to, you, I don't know. I don't know what else would, would be the, um, uh, the concluding factor on that. But what I, what I get out of it is that, you know, like it, it, it shows Elsa, I guess, the further costs of war, but I don't know. It just sucks. It just feels like that's a character that didn't have to necessarily get bumped off, but we get this great dramatic moment out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's easy morality play bullshit. Um, he's the assassin. He likes killing. He doesn't mind that they killed k on accident. Um, he's bisexual. And, so <laughs> yeah. And he's a bisexual and he's a, you know, um, and, and so I think that, it unfortunately sort of just kind of comes down to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one, one thing I find particularly um, funny maybe or interesting, um, but is that in the Hitchcock Truffaut interviews, um, Truffaut forgot the ending and Hitchcock forgot the ending. <laughs> so... I do not feel in any way, shape, or form out of line saying this is half of a good film and then it tapers off that it's like even a, a total Hitchcock, like the Hitchcock fan of all time and Hitchcock himself forgot how it ended because it's just like, yeah, whatever. That was Secret Agent and that's then, then, then it was done. Well, on to the next movie. Well, Francois, I'm pretty sure it ended with Peter Laurie shooting Robert Young in the face and then joining a battalion of uh, American soldiers in about 10 years, and then he would help them hunt down and kill Nazis and scalp them. That was my initial ending. Now, I don't remember if I shot that or not. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I did. Pretty sure I did. Good. Next question, Francois. Um, <laughs> I, love, I like this fake answer that he's given. Yeah, um, I like it too. But um, but so uh, alas, the film actually ends though with a montage of the war becoming uh, the war coming to an end thanks to this tip. It's insinuated that this is the that it's much like the film 1917. It's insinuated that this one will help win the entire war, um, and uh, it ends with back at headquarters, R and all the other soldiers are celebrating, and he looks at a postcard um, that says um, "Back at home, but never again." And then imposing the image of John Gilgood and Madeline Carroll happily ever after. And that's one of the reasons why I find it fascinating is that that, st- that statement in the postcard, mm-hmm. back home but never again, is telegraphing a message contradictory to the obvious brilliance of Peter Lorre's moment in the hotel room when he's telling him about the luxury of being able to give up. Yeah. And that's very, very, I wonder if that is a, I, I didn't look into it. I don't know if that's a code thing or not, because a lot of this doesn't have to do with sp- explicitly content um, censorship. It has to do with not wanting to offend other governments. This is before Neville Chamberlain goes over and has his now we know failed summit with Hitler. Um, that then leads to Churchill ascending office and the invasion of Britain beginning. Hmm. So this is all precursor. So everybody's tiptoeing around shit. 
and America's no different. It would take Warner Brothers in 1938 with Confessions of a Nazi Spy to break this entire uh, uh, footsieing around, you know? So, uh, but I just found it a very fascinating way to end a movie that, for the most part, I really enjoyed and I thought lends itself well into Hitchcock's espionage oeuvre. But yeah, alas, well, I, it, I think that, you know, from from the research I could do on this and interviews, it seems like regarding um, so the plot was sort of cobbled together from two different uh, of the two different novels from the Ashenden series. Um, yeah. One of them being the traitor, one of them being the hairless Mexican. And it, yeah. it seems to me that the, the plot um, was stolen from the hairless Mexican and I believe I remember reading that Hitchcock said that the love story is stolen from the traitor. So yeah. if the second half of the film or one of the through lines for the the film story is this love story, then the love story needs to end on a good note. And the yeah. only real way to make this end on a good note that doesn't have both Elsa and Ashenden sort of like embracing being assassins and secret agents and like, you know, going with their head held high into the, into the war efforts um, requires them to leave the war and to say, no, this is bad and this sort of thing. And they need to set up the, um, the moral, um, uh, the moral compass of this film because yeah, the, and, and the, and what happens when, you get consumed with it yeah. in terms of uh, Peter Lorre's character, the, the general, yeah. um, is he has to have his comeuppance. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, so as far as like it playing as a historical um, allegory and and the morality and the ethics of that and the sort of like being able to look back and look ahead and see where you are now and what do you want to say about where you are now using the story from before, yeah. Um, but also having to stick to these stories, tropes, um, and then also just sort of like using what you have to pull from your source material. And it may have been part of the contract to say, like, I'm only going to, you know, when Lori bought the rights, um, it could have been I'm only going to sell the rights to you if if this aspect of the love story is maintained. And so yeah. that was the only way they could really shoehorn it in that does sort of give a mixed message at the end of the day. Yeah. And regardless of how the film turns out um, with that ending in mind, like it's not it's not um, to my mind, it's not it's not terrible. It's just it's surprising given the trajectory that um, his British era films tend to have with um, even as early as the 39 steps of the man who knew too much laying in the foundation of the impending doom that is about to hit Europe. But it would make sense if this also came down to the morality line, which I'm, so you're. And I believe you're right in that regard because it's it would make more sense within the romantic outline, and one is trumping the other. And I think ultimately, mm -hmm. there's only so much you would be able to do with a World War One story that's clearly an allegory for what's coming in World War Two, without um, dipping into tricky territory, especially when this is 1936. This isn't even. This is like I said before. Um, Britain really gets embroiled in it. Um, right. So the film comes out, uh, and r critically, uh, from the the reception of it is just like it's uh, it's I would say mixed, because people are praising 
various elements, but they don't say they all add up. And I think that kind of touches into what we were discussing, which is there's there there's there's one half of a good movie here and then it starts to slowly but surely sink. And then it doesn't live up to the potential that it's given with and and if we're talking about two different stories that are then combined into one that clearly one is dominating the other to detrimental effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, I mean the your the name of your movie is Secret Agent, but it ends up actually being a love story. Yeah. Um is a little tough. Yeah, exactly. There's um that the um there, right now though I'll say this though amongst the, in spite of this um in, in the examiner uh, from 1937, it was listed among some of the best films of 1936. So there were th- this. This didn't have um, a, a supremely ill reception. Um, and currently on Rotten Tomatoes, from a criti- modern critical standpoint, it has a 90 percent. So people do hold this in regard. And I think wow. a lot of this has to do with time removed and able to appreciate it compared to maybe say the first film we talked about <laughs> today. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's fair. So I think also time has been kinder to it as a result. And it's and and even with me, I liked the film. I enjoyed it. Like it, it's not perfect, but I enjoyed it. Um, and so this kind of wraps up our discussion today about how a filmmaker who hit misses the mark is still able to find the tools that he needs to then go on to create memorable classics thanks to those techniques. Um, Marshall, do you have anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Um, not not really. I mean, I, I think, well, first I just want to thank you again for, for having me on here and um, really putting me in a position. I don't think I would have ever been exposed to these films, you know, twere it not for your invitation here um and i it like i I just i really like i said i really learned a lot and it was really fascinating even in the frustrating moments or the the moments of boredom um or even sometimes outrage um (laughs) at at what what was going on it i think it um especially as someone who is um it's really difficult for me to kind of like carry forward with a project or an idea about something until like everything is in its perfect place. And it's sort of this, like I want everything to to be just so, and I want the stars to align. Um, And so this experience of watching these three films has been really interesting too. um, And really good. I think for me to see a filmmaker who was willing and is willing to try something over and over and over again and, and sort of have this attitude of like, there's something here, yeah, you know, like there's something to the drama of a train chase. There's something to a train crash. And so I'm going to pour my all into it with everything I have at my uh, disposal right now. Um, and then I'm going to just see what happens. And then I can take a look back and see, okay, what worked, what didn't work. And I'll try it again. And if that doesn't work, I'll try it again and I'll try it again. That like that this this level of integrity to say, I trust in myself to know that when I think there's something there, it's worth chasing until I find it. Not until I'm not until I'm proven wrong. But is is this sort of like megalomaniac, headstrong person of saying this much is right. I may not know how to get it yet. 
I may not know how to find it or execute it, but I know there's something there. And and so that being able to kind of like seed that process in play in part in these early films um, was just was really fascinating. And, and, and none of them, not one of them is a great film. Not one of them is a good film in whole, um, but they are definitely worth worth pursuing so much so that I think that I would say my my last sort of message would be that oh my god these movies need to be restored and given some care yes um it, it should because be... they were so hard to watch i can't tell you as as great as the script was as wonderful as laurie's acting was in secret agent i had to watch the movie with subtitles on because the audio was so bad i could not understand what people were saying yeah and, and that is doing such a disservice to these amazing films these are so films these are films that are um and this is the first time we've really encountered this on the shamley silhouette this is these are films all of them are ones that have not been properly restored or released, at least stateside. The big uh, part of this is that with the exposure of Hitchcock to younger audiences, that comes with the territory of bootleg DVDs. Um, how I had to watch Secret Agent and uh, Number 17 is through a Mill Creek DVD. Mill Creek is just going to take a uh, a copy of the film that exists and put it on there and do nothing else with it because that's its stock and trade and that's how it makes money. Um, that's also the reason why a lot of uh, titles from a company that has had a lot of legal troubles in the past three years um, does not have good transfers of their films. Uh, and given the fact that that particular company is embroiled in what it is and the libraries are going to be all over the place here to here to next Sunday. But it's relevant to point out that that company and I'm talking about Weinstein and Miramax to that respect because those libraries got sold off. Um, but we find ourselves in a similar situation where those films are at risk of being um, mistreated over time. Yeah. If we're not, careful. I had to watch secret agent on um, Amazon prime. It was a below standard definition. Yeah. The audio was horrible. Strauss's great waltz. I watched on YouTube yep. and number 17. I had to, to literally do a Google search for number 17 streaming. And the only place I could find it was some website called Daily Motion that I had to download the app for to be able to watch it. And yep. all of them are in horrible shape, both audio, uh, in, in both audio and visually. Um, it's yeah. really a shame. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, and this is a situation where I do believe that ultimately when it's all said and done, these are films that hopefully after COVID is done um, uh, with with wreaking its havoc as it stands – that projects like Kino Lobor and Scream Factory and all these other places can continue to restore and get these films out in proper formats. Because something like Secret Agent, I think, absolutely deserves a transfer. Waltzes from Vienna, I think, deserves a, a, a great deal of attention to it and nothing else to dig up further history. Um, and even Number 17, which, in spite of what we've discussed about it, um, is... Uh, is a film that I think should be there for the posterity of Hitchcock's career, but also just a, 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 a an example of even the master can have a tricky time at times. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, number 17 seems like it's going to see the light of day in terms of restoration before the other two. Um, mm -hmm. It's on uh, Kino Lorber's docket. Uh, there's just no uh, timeline announcement yet. Right. So within that, we, we, we hope that everything is able to come to fruition in that respect because Kino Lober has been doing a great job at restoring those films. 
Um, but that's going to be wrapping it up for the Shamley Silhouette this week. Um, we've had a wonderful talk about not only films that need to be rescued, but also films that show that even the ones that have the biggest legendary status of all time have a few misses, but also where there's hope in those misses. The first misses we talked about were ones in his later career and how that related to him not letting go of certain things. But this is the formation of a lot of those tropes that he would later hold on to sometimes to detrimental effect, but others to great success. Um, that's going to be it for this week. You can find the Shamley Silhouette on realnerdspodcast.com and the Real Nerds Podcast feed. Starting with ne- starting with this episode, we will also be coming to you through the website first and then on the feed later so that we can get this sucker wrapped up by Hitch's birthday. That's the goal with the final episode coming out on August 13th, and it will be Adam Roach from The Secret History of Hollywood coming down to chat about a general Hitchcock conversation, which was pre-recorded. And, um, but yeah, until next time, good night. Mm-hmm.